Yeah, precisely. Like no one doesn't have a stance on consciousness. You just haven't really expressed it openly yet. And a lot of the, you know, and, and of course that brings up questions of stuff like free will and so on, but novels are still the only intrinsic media. They're the only thing really capable of representing consciousness well. So they have this huge advantage, particularly if you want to talk just thematically about these sorts of issues. And I think, you know, the joy of fiction is that I can give different characters different perspectives. And, you know, I, I want to say that all the characters have some different perspective, particularly on the problem of consciousness. And something that's interesting to me as a novelist is how these ideas influence your life. You know, it's, it's not which of these ideas are correct, which is of interest to me. It's kind of like, if you believe X, how does that then impact your behavior? Like as a person, you know, how you orientate yourself towards really big questions trickles down to all these like little behaviors. And every character has some trickle down moment where they're kind of how they think about consciousness ends up kind of impacting their behavior. Hello, I'm Oshan Jarrow, and welcome back to the Musing Mind podcast. Today, I'm speaking with the neuroscientist, novelist, and first repeat guest of the show, Eric Howell. Uh, Eric is a research assistant professor at Tufts University studying consciousness. He has worked with Giulio Tononi on one of the leading scientific theories of consciousness today, known as Integrated Information Theory, or IIT. But more importantly for today's conversation, Eric is a writer and has his first novel coming out this April titled The Revelations. I got the chance to read Eric's novel, which is about a young scientist named Kirk obsessed with discovering the theory of consciousness and also a murder mystery, uh, which makes for an awesome mix. And our conversation centers around all sorts of themes and questions and musings that the book brings up. Uh, the process of writing the book itself, and also, you know, the, the structure and intentions behind it. Uh, we get into the unique relationship that literature and specifically fiction uh, has with consciousness as a form of what Eric calls intrinsic media. We explore theories of consciousness like IIT. We talk about some of Eric's recent research into the relationship between evolution, emergence, complex systems, and consciousness. We talk about some things that science might not be able to tell us about consciousness. And maybe most importantly, we talk about why, if aliens do exist, that we better hope they're closer to mammals than insects. Um, if you like our conversation, I, I highly recommend checking out his novel, which is available now for pre-order. You can also listen to the first of our conversations for the podcast, where we discuss uh, an essay that he wrote titled Enter the Supersensorium, which remains one of my favorite essays I've read to date. Uh, links to the books that we mentioned in the podcast are all collected on the show notes page, as well as a transcript, which is a, a new frontier for me in the podcast. Uh, you can find all of that at musingmind.org slash podcast and clicking on the episode. And if you find value in the podcast and want to help it exist, you can share it on social media. You can leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, 
which not only helps new listeners find the show, but also helps assure potential guests that it might be worth saying yes to my random invite emails. And if you're truly compelled to support the show and have the means, you can become a Patreon supporter by offering a small monthly donation, like one or two bucks a month, the stability of which really helps me uh, invest more time and equipment into improving the podcast. You can go to patreon.com slash or just find a link on the podcast page. All right, let's get into it. Enjoy my conversation with Eric Howell. Well, Eric, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, first repeat guest, I believe. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, the first time this is a milestone. Um, I, I think that <laughs> last time we spoke, you were, among other things, you were working in the research lab at Tufts on, on neuroscience and, and theories of consciousness. Is that still the case? That is still the case. I have a cushy kind of uh, research <laughs> position where by cushy, I mean I can kind of research what I want to research. Mm. That's that's the definition of cushy if you're a scientist, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, right. All right. So we have a lot to, to get into today about scientific theories of consciousness, the limitations of human knowledge, fiction, and tying them all together is your debut novel coming out in April um, called The Revelations. Congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. It's been a long um, time coming. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that. I, I want to ask you about that. I, I think I actually saw on your website that you'd started writing this maybe even back when you were an undergraduate. Is that right? Yeah, this is a manuscript that I've kind of been fiddling with for an incredibly long time. In a sense, um, you could say that I very much started as a writer, realized that consciousness was an interesting, incredibly interesting subject and something that I had not really seen explored. And by consciousness, I mean of course, both the phenomenon that's explored all the time in novels, but also the scientific study of it. Mm. And so it seemed like the scientific study of consciousness, it's where the subjective meets the objective. And in that kind of tidal churn, there's so much going on. And I kind of thought or realized this is the perfect place for a novel, particularly kind of a novel about science. I felt I might be maybe the person to write that. And mm. Because uh, I was so interested in this, I mean, I ended up going into consciousness research professionally, kind of with the intent of, you know, getting the, the down low on what was actually going on. And I ended up actually being pretty good at it and kind of making a, making a career of it while all the while um, kind of fiddling with the manuscript. But I'm, I'm very much in that sense, like a method actor who's kind of wandered off set and continues to do the same thing that he was, you know, pretending to do on set. And, you know, enough that he's now, like, employed you know, <laughs> in, the, in the thing that he was kind of acting. So what you're telling me is that your entire academic and professional career has been an extended research project for this book. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so you and I spoke about this a little bit in, in our first conversation for the podcast, but I think we should start by talking about why you wrote a, a and you, you hinted at it just now, but why you wrote a novel about consciousness. Because generally, if a scientist who works on theories of consciousness and is himself enthralled to those questions of consciousness, we might expect a nonfiction book, right? Because I think our intuitions tell us that through nonfiction, you could be more direct about you know, the questions and ideas you're exploring. But I think that you have a you have a very specific view on the relationship between fiction and consciousness, and I, I think that, that there are these affordances that you find there that you might not find in nonfiction. So, 
why a fiction book about consciousness? What does that afford you that nonfiction wouldn't have? So, first of all, I think fiction is the most omnivorous of all art forms. You can put anything in a novel. <laughs> you, you, you can put essays in a novel. Like, Moby Dick is half just essays about whaling. You know, there are downsides to this approach. I mean, you, you still have to have something kind of readable, you know, in the end. Uh, but the difference, you know, and what makes kind of a novel a novel is both its its omnivorous quality and also the fact that novels do something that I call they take the intrinsic perspective on the world. So mm. what that means is that every novel, particularly like a, a third person novel, to some degree a first person novel, but I, I think particularly a third person novel, it is taking place in an imaginary world where what philosophers call the problem of other minds does not exist. The problem of other minds is this idea that I don't really know that you're conscious. At least I don't know it in the way that I know that I'm conscious. Mm -hmm. But in a novel, because everything is flattened and laid out into the same representational structure that is language, you can point to intrinsic events like emotions, memories, thoughts, feelings, and you can refer to them directly in a way you can't do with other media. You know, even in a you know very kind of literary-esque TV show like Mad Men, you if you're going to show the internal kind of perspective of John Draper, you have to do a flashback. Or if like he's angry, you have to literally show the actor getting angry. You're stuck in the same epistemological position towards your characters as an artist that you are towards people in the real world. And I think that mm -hmm. in novels, it's kind of this portal out of that into this world where if I say there is a chair in the room or there is anger in the room, I am referring to both entities directly. So this direct reference. And that is, I think, an incredibly special quality of novels. And this is something I was I've been thinking about since I was very young. I mean, you know, I grew up hawking books. You know, I grew up as a bookseller selling books in my mother's independent bookstore, which she owned. And of course, that makes me want to be a writer, but it also made me very interested in what was so powerful and unique about fiction. And I think it's that it takes this intrinsic perspective. And when I got to college and began learning about that there were people out there trying to understand how the extrinsic you know, mechanisms of the brain gives rise to this intrinsic perspective, is it emergent? Is it panpsychist? Maybe you're an eliminativist. You maybe you don't even think that there is an intrinsic perspective, or we're kind of fooled about it in some way. These are all kind of interesting, you know, approaches. But they're people trying to deal with this problem. And I kind of realized what I had never seen before. What I, what, what book did I want to read? As someone who read a lot of books, I wanted to read a book that was somehow about this issue. It somehow took place in this issue where you could. It, and it's the one domain where you can kind of find science and literature on even footing. And then you can kind of fight them against each other, or even a better terminology would be like watch them dance together in some sort of way. And that idea, just that like aesthetic impulse is really was the ultimate motivation for, for choosing to do a, a fiction book. And I think ultimately because of that, I consider myself much more a fiction writer 
than a nonfiction writer, although we'll see kind of how that develops. But certainly for during the time of writing this book, I never had the thought this should be nonfiction or, or something like that. It was always it was always that fiction was somehow omnivorous and primary and it would be able to eat up these ideas. And in the end, kind of literature stands triumphant in some mm-hmm. sort of way that I thought was I thought was kind of necessary or, or deeply interesting. Yeah, it's it's funny. That reminds me, um, my probably my favorite writer, Annie Dillard. She mm. she was primarily an, and began as a nonfiction writer. She actually started with a book of poetry and then published, I think, seven nonfiction kind of narrative prose books. And you know, she was her question was really God and suffering. These very heady theological questions. And then I think her eighth or ninth book, something like that. She tried writing fiction, and and she talked about this same kind of phenomenon you just did, where when she moved into fiction, it wasn't that she was enthralled to fiction as a thing. She wanted to explore the particular questions that animated her life, and she found that moving into fiction was kind of like stepping into a, a landscape that was so much larger than she had been in terms of what is at, what's at her disposal um, to really get into those questions. It was a, I just read that the other day. It was a similar similar process, but. throughout, I I, want to bring in a lot of scenes and quotes from the book. So I think just to establish a baseline context, do you want to give us a quick idea, a quick overview of what the book is about? So the the Revelations is about a program that gets set up at New York University, and it invites some of the best and brightest young minds to go try to study and understand how the human brain generates consciousness. And it should be understood now that within that overall field of neuroscience, consciousness research is kind of viewed as a bit wacky or, or woo-woo uh, hmm. to certain degrees. So having that kind of real actual program is, is a very big deal. And these young scientists arrive and one of them dies under mysterious circumstances. And the others kind of form an amateur noirish investigation into this death, almost using the methods of science itself at various points to try to figure out what exactly happened and whether or not it has anything to do with uncovering the actual mystery of consciousness itself. So on the the topic of consciousness, we're going to be talking about it a lot. And I think we should do a little bit of definition setting as as to what we mean by that. Um, and I thought this would actually be a good place to take our first jump right into the book, which is early on, uh, Kirk is at the the first kind of convening meeting of this, of this program he's a part of. And there's a passage that um, gives us kind of a working definition of consciousness. And it's specifically um, as it was laid out by Francis Crick, who discovered DNA. Um, and he also then seemed to have this really fascinating kind of interest in consciousness. And like you mentioned, it wasn't uh, an accepted thing to do at the time. So we try to kind of couch it in a more scientific approach. But um, there he defines consciousness as, or you through him, the inner domain of sensations and perceptions and thoughts all centered around a self that make up your life. The world of experience that begins when you wake up in the morning and vanishes when you enter a deep dreamless sleep. Your consciousness is what it is like to be you. Um, so there's a couple of, of elements in there we can always get into, but more or less, is this a way you would want to define consciousness? Would you add or subtract anything? I, I think it's a pretty good, reasonable definition. We have to be very careful here because something that uh, some people say, which is a mistake, is that something like that is not a rigorous enough definition of consciousness. 
And of course, the whole point in starting out with a pre-paradigmatic definition of consciousness is at least that you can agree on what you're pointing at. So if, if you had an incredibly rigorous definition of consciousness, we would probably have a scientific theory of consciousness, which we don't have, hmm. right? It's like, if, if you want a rigorous definition of air, right, you end up with some like chemical theory, right? But that's a non-rigorous- what you mean by pre-paradigmatic that we don't have that theory of consciousness Exactly, yet. so we don't have that. So as long as we can all kind of gesture to the same thing, as long as you kind of know what I, what, what I mean when I say your stream of consciousness, and it, it is the thing that kind of boots up when you awake from a, from, from a dreamless sleep, that is, that is the phenomenon that we are talking about. And we're particularly talking about its, ex, its experiential quality, right? We're, we're talking about the fact that it's, it's experience, it's experiences, right? So it's like the redness of red, you know, the very classic philosophical mm. definition. But, you know, it's, it's very, you know, when you write a book like this, you know, you, you are constantly trying to figure out ways in which to do some sort of exposition, but without kind of weighing down the reader in, in like a deep way. Like, I, I, I firmly believe that this book could be read by someone with really kind of minimal interest in consciousness. Yes. Just maybe kind of broadly as like an interesting murder mystery about a scientific that involves some scientific subfield, which is kind of mildly interesting. So <laughs> that's at least the goal. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to bring up uh, already an, an infinite rabbit hole, but there, there's one place I'd like to go. I think it'll help later on. Um, as I was kind of reading to prepare for this and also for another conversation I'm having with, we talked about this, Chris Letheby, who studies the, the cognitive science of ego dissolution and changes to self-consciousness under high-dose psychedelic experiences. A question that I think is relevant here is to ask, and I'll elaborate, but to ask, what the self is, because in, in Lethaby's space, his theory, which which I think is very widely held, is that what you and I just defined as consciousness, that kind of phenomenal quality that is familiar to us, and what we experience then is, is our self-consciousness, that that sense is actually an internally generated representation, or I think the, the common phrase is a controlled hallucination, um, a model of reality that is kind of put together by our brains via predictive processing and cognitive binding. And if that's the case, Consciousness is not so much a window onto the outside world as it is a kind of secondhand report on what might be out there. Do you generally kind of agree with this idea that that self-consciousness or kind of what we just said is consciousness, is that kind of internally generated representation? I, I don't want to put too much weight on the word like representation, but, mm -hmm. but maybe a better way to say it would be something along the lines of there is no difference between your waking consciousness and a dream other than that the waking consciousness happens to correspond to stuff that's actually going on in the world. Mm -hmm. It happens to correspond because of the immense selective pressures that have taken place over time such that it does correspond. But there's no sort of unique access that you have to the world's information, right? Like when you're, when you're listening to this, you think that kind of the sounds are coming in from this outside world to you. Well, both the you and the, that outside world are both actually being kind of generated from your brain. So mm -hmm. that when you point to something, there's kind of a sense in which you're pointing to your own skull at any given time. <laughs> now, it, 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 it then, you know, it happens to correspond to a real thing, right? So then all that sort of representational talk works. Um, but I do think that, you know, 
consciousness is is, is a waking dream. And this is again not something that's immensely controversial. I can name a, a right. dozen consciousness scientists, you know, who who do that off the top of their head. But I think you know within the novel itself, um, you know the the notion of waking and the notion of dream dreams kind of keeps cropping up the every chapter begins with the same three words every chapter is a is a day and i think that there is a daily rhythm to our consciousness you know like monday comes round again and well people like james joyce and ulysses had explored you know kind of done like an entire novel in a day you know that there's been a number of novelists who've kind of done that mm-hmm. um I think that there's something about our consciousness which is very used to kind of this day after day structure, and it it kind of is is a good reflection of it. Uh, and so, kind of moving between dream and wake was a big part of trying to capture that within within the novel itself. Yeah, yeah. There, there's one uh, the the movement between dream and waking is is just a really fun theme throughout there, and, and we'll get to that. Um, but one kind of delightful recurring event throughout the book is we also get these uh, glimpses into Kirk's notebook, right? He has these kind of furious moments where he grabs a pen and, and works out his thoughts. And there, there's one particular passage in there I wanted to, to bring us into as a starting point. I'll pick it up about halfway through, but he writes, for what snapping amphibious creature first contained that divine spark? Did it first wink on in the neural nets of swimming hydras? Or did it slowly accumulate like dust over all biological processes? Was it brought about by predation, by the need for ambulation, avoidance, and planning on the millisecond timescale? Could it have arisen from such dark origins as biblical as freedom arising only from the fall? And what of its fate forward in time? What beautiful consciousnesses will one day occupy the tangled bank of our solar system if we can only persevere? And there's there's a lot in there, but what I really wanted to pull out was that question of what of its fate forward in time. Um, th- to me, this is I think one of the most fascinating um, experiences of consciousness that, in fact, that it changes on on one hand across a, a single individual individual's lifetime, but also kind of more drastically across a species's lifetime and the, and the evolution of the species. Right as the species evolves, so does our kind of basic lived experience of of what it is like to be us. So that if, if we think back to our hunting and, and gathering ancestors, what it felt like to be them to exist was probably significantly different from kind of our general patterns of, of that sensation today. Um, and maybe a, a more technical way to phrase that would be that the, the self model, that kind of representational capacity evolves over time. But if you go the other direction, right, rather than looking in the past and you look in, in the future, the, the magnitude of evolution that that's likely to occur in consciousness in how our brains kind of represent and kind of give that world to us. Um, it, not only is it probably going to change, but probably at a greater rate than, than it had in the past. So how do you think about kind of that, that fate of consciousness forward in time? Do you see that kind of evolving exponentially? Do you see that basic sensation of, of what it is like uh, as a piece that evolves and, and will continue to do so? This is something that kind of crops up at the edges of the of the book. I mean, there's a way to read this entire book as basically a pleading message to a future group mind that this is what it was like to be an individual. Like this Mm -hmm. is what it was like to wake up alone, you know, in your own mind every day and view the world through a, through a tunnel of, of perception. And 
you know, there there are good reasons to think that consciousness might not be an individuated. I know this sounds rather insane, but but I I think that there's some good possibilities that as people you know become much more integrated, and we can go into some actual theories of consciousness where you you can actually track this effect, like using integrated information theory. Uh, as people become more integrated. I mean, you, you basically have the reduction of individual consciousnesses and the emergence of group minds. I mean, maybe there is something already about our culture that's kind of like that, wherein you have social media, which acts as this kind of attentional eye of Sauron that like turns to different subjects. And it looks a lot like mm. an attentional window, right? But it's an attentional window created by what? The whole planet? <laughs> and, you know, that that sort of thing, well... It, the, the book is not actually science fiction. I mean, I, and I worked really hard to make sure that it that it's not science fiction, but it has kind of these science fiction inspired musings within it ab- about this sort of thing. And and I do think that yes, the structure of consciousness might change. And I also think that you know, I I wanted to preserve in stone. Hey, this is this is what it's like to be an individual human being, and it's what it's like to wake up day after day. Oh, and I, I also wanted to just because we're talking about characters and so on, just for any mm. listeners, uh, Kirk is is kind of the the protagonist, although he's a very digressive character. He thinks a lot of different thoughts about consciousness and about metaphysics and kind of these high level abstract things. And he he doesn't really in a sense, he doesn't really push the, the plot of the book forward very much. Uh, so in that sense is why I kind of hesitate to call him the protagonist. There's mm. a sense in which this other character, Carmen who's a scientist who's, who's probably a little bit more down to earth and maybe functional than, than Kirk um, is very interested in solving this murder. And she kind of pushes the, the plot forward. Um, and they kind of play this duality between uh, you know, there's captain Ahab who, who is obsessed with something. And then there's Ishmael and, and captain Ahab is the progressive force and Ishmael is the digressive force. And similarly, Carmen is very kind of obsessed with solving this murder mystery. Kirk, kind of isn't really as interested in it. Um, it. It's kind of happening like around him and he kind of shows up basically because he likes Carmen. Um, <laughs> and he's much more interested in the mystery of consciousness. Um, and so they play this this kind of game back and forth between kind of progressing something and then digressing something. So, I, you know, but Kirk is the main character, but the reason why he's having all these digressions, digressions and thinking about consciousness is because he plays this very digressive role within the novel itself that I think kind of keeps you from kind of speeding all the way to the end and gives you that nice back and forth, or hopefully <laughs> gives you that nice back and forth where you, you feel like, yes, you're, you're progressing in the plot, but you're also kind of getting all this, all this extra stuff of living in someone's mind. Yeah. I mean, it almost mirrors the structure of, of how each of us, well, I'll speak for myself, how I would experience the world in that I have my internal world, which is full of these very kind of concordant, uh, digressive, overlapping narratives that come and go, not in kind of a, a neat linear structure. And, and then kind of the world is also happening around me with its own lines. And it's kind of an interesting, um, almost way in which they're syncopated. They're not quite lined up the way that things unfold kind of in my own internal consciousness. And then, oh, yeah, I'm part of this world where all these things are happening and these own plot lines. It's an interesting kind of uh, juxtaposition. But even and before we go too far away from it, you were talking about how the book is is almost a, a plea or etching into stone to to show future generations, hey, this is what it was like. Um, it, it makes me think of a certain strand of of literary history, almost a, as as a record of that evolving selfhood that that art over 
the generations, civilizations, so on, is kind of this like evolving timeline. And, and if you can read it in a certain way, and if it's put together in a certain way, it, it's giving you these clues of like this, this absolutely fascinating and, and probably to Kirk, like the, the most fascinating record of, of what is going on here on earth, which is the evolution of this, of this selfhood. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, some of the original work on consciousness, like Julian Jane's work, um, something by Caramel Mind, I'm forgetting the title off the top of my head, but in it, you know, he's arguing that you can read like Homeric epics and you realize that the structure of the consciousness of these people must be rather different. And of course, he thought that effectively people were talking about the gods speaking to them and they really meant basically their prefrontal cortex is mm. is telling me like I should or shouldn't do this this thing and I interpret it as as the voice of a god mm. but you know th- there are some super interesting studies that have actually or at least you know uh you know some investigation maybe study is too strong a word of exactly how this has changed across time but I, and I think we're at a moment where it is changing you know people are, you know people joke about this being like plugged in you know and so mm-hmm. on but like when you, there is good reasons to believe that neurons have to be dumb. Like you you can't have neurons be too complex and get them all in a network to do the same thing. So you, like you're a very smart being made out of very dumb beings, right? Mm-hmm. Which are individual neurons. It might not at all be possible to make a very smart being out of very smart components. Like <laughs> oh, it, it, it might be that basically, and, and I think that there's been some math in this on network theory showing this, but effectively the dumber to get a really smart network, you need dumb nodes. So what's going on with social media, mm. right? Because I mean, is there a sense in which by participating in kind of like this continuous stream of, of discourse, like you, you are kind of like a node in some vast network and we should take that really seriously. And then we should also think about the fact that there's no way for that network to be really smart while all its components are also smart. It's far better for that big network to be really smart and be made of kind of dumb components or like non-conscious components. We should probably think about that at a certain point. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm not, the, 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 again, the book, the book isn't exactly about this. There are a couple of discussions about group minds in there that kind of hints at mm-hmm. this stuff, but just about my own, motivations i mean i think that there's something about consciousness which which can make someone seem very almost like it's almost masturbatory to just talk about your own consciousness so much right mm-hmm. uh it's solipsistic maybe a better maybe a better word but <laughs> um and i think that there is truth to that but it it's also true that maybe there are some deep questions here about what consciousness is going to look like in the future. I mean, there's even a part of the book, right, where some kind of mysterious person from DARPA Mm -hmm. comes and and asks Kirk about these sorts of questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and we'll get to that. I want to touch on on IIT first, but there's an excerpt from that mysterious DARPA agent that's really interesting. Um, But before we get there, let's let's talk about Carmen for a moment. Uh, Carmen is this kind of beautiful model-turned-consciousness researcher, and there's a scene where her and Kirk are on a coffee date and they wind up kind of swapping stories about the moment they first knew they wanted to study consciousness. And I think her story is a really good way to, to get inside of her character a little bit, uh, specifically, and I, I won't give the background for her, I'll, I'll leave that to you, but there's a point where she says, the problem is with our whole culture. There's no mind anymore. It's all just flesh. And then she goes on this kind of wonderful monologue about how we've cut ourselves down the middle 
um, that, as she puts it, we've forgotten the other part of us, the consciousness part of us. So everyone's life is now some kind of half-life. So uh, give us whatever context you think we need about Carmen to understand kind of what she's getting at here. What what part of ourselves have we lost and what does it mean to be living a half-life in that sense? Sure, of, of course. I mean, I, Carmen, like many of the characters, inspired first by like an abstract idea to me and then she kind of becomes more of a person over time as, as a character. What, what I mean by that is to explain my motivation for the original character of like this this beautiful woman scientist, you know, she, she, it almost seems like she has it all and so on. But, you know, her point is that she's basically a, a walking embodiment of the mind-body problem. I mean, she's even aware of that in that she literally ha- calls it the mind-body problem. <laughs> um, and that's that's actually a, a, a kind of stolen from Rebecca Goldstein's uh, first novel. She wrote a book called The Mind-Body Problem about this young woman. Um, that ended up being more about mathematics and, and so on but like that generalized idea that people could be embodiments of philosophical problems i just i loved it mm. and i i think there's a deep sense in which carmen is kind of the better scientist than than kirk mm. in fact she might be the best scientist in the book the, of, of all the characters i mean she's definitely the most kind of rigorous she's logical she's quite rational and she's kind of ended up in there's a bit of magical realism in in this book um you know she it's hinted at that carmen is so attractive that she's almost like unearthly or freakish um you know there there's a part where it, it talks about how her asymmetries that there are no asymmetries like in her body and 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 people even kind of freeze when they look at her there's a lot of every character is also an instantiation of a greek myth She's the instantiation of Medusa. Kirk is the instantiation of a centaur because he's kind of torn between two, between two different careers, basically, or mm. two different ways of knowing the world, which is writing versus science. Carmen is very much Medusa. C- characters are constantly kind of freezing when they kind of see her. And this is something that kind of exists outside of her. She doesn't feel very connected to this. And, you know, her mother basically kind of ends up taking her on this this modeling career path, which she kind of has to fight to get out of and, and get into scientific research and fought to be taken seriously within that world, given how she looks. But I think, you know, her, you know, original inspiration is as this kind of walking embodiment of these of this this abstract problem. And she ends up being, as I said, the the progressive force of the book. Um, you know, she's the one actually doing the investigating She's the one actually kind of figuring stuff out. Kirk is kind of along for the ride. And, you know, I think Carmen is, is you know, more than smart enough to kind of come up with these, you know, kind of deep metaphysical justifications of her own, of her own life. And, you know, one of those is that she, you know, not only didn't really want to work as a model, but she thought that there was something n- not intrinsically wrong with working as a model, but wrong with the culture as a whole. And that was that, we don't really value the intrinsic perspective. And so part of her kind of push to work on consciousness and be a young consciousness researcher is to, you know, both promote is promote this kind of intrinsic perspective. Um, And, you know, even within that scene, you know, there, that, that whole scene involves like, she's, she's at a a modeling party and there's this like orgy and she's kind of like disgusted by it. Um, And she's not disgusted by it because it's, an orgy she's disgusted mm-hmm. because there's no there was no like mind involved mm-hmm. and like minds are 
like erotic in a certain way. Like, Mm -hmm. I I don't know if you can have real like eroticism, like without mental states in there. Um, It was almost like an orgy. It felt like zombies, like pee zombies. Yeah, like literally, yeah, precisely. Like literally philosophical zombies, um, which are these imaginary beings like humans that that don't have any conscious experience. So uh, talked about all the time in philosophy. So she, she, and she's very kind of aware of that. You know, the difficulty of doing a Carmen character is, is, you know, of course that, um, you know, she's, 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 you have to walk that fine line where, you know, she's inspired by this original problem, you know, and she and Kirk, you know, there, there is you know, a bit of a, a romance there. There's, there's definitely a romantic element to the book. I think the book as a whole is like a very romantic work mm-hmm. and, you know, g- getting Carmen's character to be able to participate in that but still have, you know, the fact that in the end, she's, she's like a badass scientist. Like I said, I think she's like the best scientist in, in the whole book in, in many ways. Um, that was, I think, difficult, but, but her character kind of came to me all at once. It was like, you know, I, I want to do this, this, this character as someone who just every moment that they exist, they have to face, you know, this, this mind body problem. <laughs> And, and and by the way, other characters have similarly abstract motivations. And and you know, I I, f- I fear whenever I describe stuff like this, what I'm describing is my thought process. I mean, mm-hmm. I think you know, in the end, the character works because of like the little things about you know, like how she likes to listen to NPR and how she makes her coffee and like stuff like that. Like that's how characters actually work. But my motivations are almost always at first very abstract. Like Kirk is is literally Kierkegaard, right? Mm-hmm. It's hinted at that he may be an actual reincarnated Kierkegaard. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's very, it's very unclear, right? <laughs> um, at least that's kind of how I think about him. So, you know, when you start with these very abstract motivations, you can end up with kind of weird characters, but you know, this isn't, it's not exactly a realist novel. All the characters have something that's a bit freakish or strange about them. That's a bit unusual about them. And for her, it's that she's kind of stuck both privileged, but also stuck in, you know, this body that's just like almost completely, like she's, she's almost like walking around this biological robot that happens to have all the most amazing properties that one mm-hmm. could have, but then kind of feeling disconnected from it in certain ways. It's kind of like the, I used to love this quote, the, the Jim Carrey quote, where he says something like, uh, you know, I wish everyone could, could become rich and famous. They'd figure out it's not the answer, but it's like the pendulum swings so far in that direction of what we all think we want. And then you get there and you're like, huh, <laughs> this isn't it. There, there's more, there should be more here. I, I don't think that Kirk names it necessarily. I mean, he kind of does, um, but doesn't, I think formally, it seems like the theory of consciousness closest to Kirk's thinking is integrated information theory or IIT that you mentioned. And you know, this is theory that you've personally done a lot of work with. Um, and there's a number of questions I'd like to ask you about consciousness uh, that are, are kind of revolve around that. So b- before getting into anything else, I'd like to ask you the, the maybe impossible task of, of a brief introduction of or to IIT. Um, the thing, the caveat I'll add is that this would, to do it right, would need an episode of its own. Um, if anyone wants a fuller view on, on the show notes page, I'll, I'll link a couple of articles that give you a, a fuller kind of exposition. But it, for the purposes of moving forward, could you give us a quick idea of how IIT tries to explain consciousness? Sure. Uh, IIT starts with the premise that you can't really explain consciousness. But what you can do is that you can come up with ways to tell where consciousness is in the world and to what degree things have it. 
um, so to come up with formal theories. And the idea is that you basically start with your own phenomenology, you start with the own structure of your, your experience, and you try to map those properties down into the world. You know, the way that it's proposed to do that is via information theory. And, you know, the end result is this identity between when a complex system integrates information and whether or not that complex system has consciousness. A very simple example of this would be that, you know, on on falling into a deep dreamless sleep, what this would predict would be that the parts of your brain become very unintegrated, excuse me. And then when you wake up and your brain integrates, that's the arising of the stream mm. of consciousness. And, and one of the, the really fun um, implications of IIT, and, and you've touched on this a bit, you know, is, is the idea that as digital technologies and the internet keep integrating information across society, um, the entire globe gets woven tighter and tighter together, there could come a time when the integrated information inside an, an individual's or, or brain's body um, is less, or maybe the better way to put it, the integrated information of society on the whole is more or larger than an individual's. And according to the theory, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's only one entity within a system that is recognized as conscious, and it is the entity with the highest um, volume of integrated information. So theoretically, if society develops in such a way that the information continues integrating and integrating, there comes a point where society would be recognized as the conscious entity as opposed to the individual. And you, you mentioned um, the DARPA agent. I wanted to pull out uh, a quote from there because he, he kind of comes up to Kirk on the street and he's asking him these very specific questions. And, and one of them is about exactly this. And Kirk responds, human civilization, the biosphere, etc., becomes more and more coupled via technological advances and growing population, like ants or cells learning to cooperate. Sure, we're individuals in the early stages, but as the new sphere grows in concentration and integration, a phase transition takes place at some point, and the first sign is actually the construction of cities. Eventually, as a civilization becomes more concentrated, its tasks and workings more globally distributed, and its energy demands greater, drawing tighter and tighter, coupling its individuals together more and more through interaction. It's all merely the evolution of integration or the right kind of integration. Um, and, and so, and then he, he finishes that thought by saying, eventually, step-by-step, step, it will undergo sub-omega point integration ratchets until, and then kind of shrugs so as to say, you know, you can only guess. So is this a fair or a kind of plausible reading of IIT that if integration evolves in a particular way, eventually society would kind of displace individuals as the conscious entity within that system. I, I like sub omega point ratchets. That's very Kirk speak. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so, so first of all, I'll say you, you don't even really need IIT to make this point. I mean, I, IIT is, I think has a very unique position as being one kind of what a theory of consciousness should look like. So it, it deserves this very nice historical place in consciousness research. But it's true even just in like pre-theoretic concepts before you have to go into the actual like mechanisms of the theory. That for example, we, we kind of know there is a sense in which we do know that consciousness is kind of carnivorous. I know that that sounds strange at first, but <laughs> like, do you really, is it really, is it really the case? Like you have one singular conscious experience no kind of subset of you is a subset of you isn't having some other conscious experience. This sounds again, very like theoretical, but it's, it, it's kind of just based around these thought experiments about like, yes, you know, I, I generally, I always have one unique conscious experience. And 
there are phenomena in nature that are kind of like this. Like if you if you take two bubbles and you press two bubbles together, they they generally form like one bubble, right? Mm-hmm. They just kind of seamlessly merge into a big bubble. Or you take a big bubble and you pop it apart into smaller bubbles. But like there are phenomena that are like this. And, you know, I, I think that there's a good chance that consciousness ends up having those sorts of properties where like you can't really like put a, bu- you can't really have a bunch of intersections of different consciousnesses. Instead, you have one big consciousness that kind of eats up whatever is kind of, you know, talking to it if it's talking at a high enough bandwidth. And so that does get back to this notion of, you know, integrated information. But I think one thing that haunts the book is this notion of cities, you know, this, Mm-hmm. The Revelations is a, is a classic New York City novel. Like it's set in downtown Manhattan. The city itself is very much a character thematically. Um, and it's hinted at at various points that this, you know, when you really start thinking about consciousness, you realize that the, the metaphysics and ontology of the world might be very strange. Like it is not actually completely impossible that New York City has a stream of consciousness. Hmm. Maybe it's immensely slow. Maybe it doesn't really look at all like what our consciousness looks like, but we don't know what the space of possible conscious experiences are. And certainly if you think about your brain, you know, why is your brain conscious? Well, because it's complex, because it integrates a lot of information. Okay, well, 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 what does New York do then? (laughs) So that's right. Like New York is really complex. New York integrates a lot of information. It's got, it even has like, you know, it's even a strange loop because there are documents in New York that talk about New York City as a city, right? Mm-hmm. Like there, almost every property that you can think of that seems so unique to the brain seems somewhat satisfied by various readings of New York. So it, it you know, within the novel, that the, the kind of the atmosphere of the novel is one in which it's it's hinted at that maybe there is kind of a consciousness to the city and and maybe that's what makes New York, New York, right? I mean, for anyone who's really spent time there, New York has a feel, it has a romanticism to it. And maybe the best way to understand that is that that's kind of part of how the city itself feels. But it's it's also, you know, uh, one thing I want to stress and what I at least tried, you know, I can only talk about what I tried to do, right? I, I can't talk about the actual result because that's not ever up to me. To, to judge, right? Like I talked about the Carmen character. Well, that's how I, you know, motivated and saw the Carmen character, but other people might have a different interpretation. And similarly, you know, I, I don't want to say that the novel promotes a particular theory of consciousness. Even within the novel, it's, it's unclear. Like if the city does have its own consciousness and that grew to the point where it did subsume, would that be a good or bad thing? I mean, I think that there is a small scene somewhere where it's hinted at that maybe being subsumed by a greater, like maybe the way a brain module feels when it, if you think about the brain and it's waking up and you have a bunch of these different brain modules and they're all kind of booting up, right? And they all are beginning to talk to one another. Maybe they do have kind of a micro consciousness at the moment of their boot up. And what does it feel like to be subsumed up into this great whirlwind of consciousness that's going all across the cortex. That's going to be the final, the winning victor, you know, the, the, the winning victor, the, the thing that's actually having the perception when you wake up and go about your day. Maybe that feels like transcendence. Maybe that feels like you're being subsumed up into God. 
those are the sorts of things. I mean, I think that this stuff is really fun to talk about and really speculative and interesting, but it's that sort of atmosphere that I want to get across. And it's, it's not clear to me that there is a, that there is a clear answer in the end. It will be whatever, uh, whatever the final scientific theory of consciousness says can occur or does occur, right? Like until then we're all just kind of speculating about it. Yeah. And I think that we have a, uh, some a bias where we assume that since we have this kind of privileged access to at least one to our own consciousness, we know what our own consciousness feels like. I think we tend to assume that consciousness is going to be very similar to that. It's not necessarily anthropomorphizing it, but assuming, oh, this is consciousness. And it's why I think that the the kind of talking about defining consciousness is really important and to be intellectually honest about it in, in that consciousness could could look and feel differently in, in many different kind of instantiations. I'm thinking of, um, you know, when you're talking about the city, there was, for example, uh, the Situationists, a group of like, you know, Parisian intellectuals back in the mid 20th century. They had this whole practice that they called derivés. Um, and I think if when you bring it into English, they talked about it under the label of psychogeography, where they would go out into a city and it had to be, it was always a city and they would walk aimlessly and what they were looking for is they felt that the city itself had a kind of psychogeographic um, aspect to it, that if you were open to it, it would kind of guide you on its own. You kind of fall into these, I mean, maybe you could describe it with a metaphor of like the Chinese meridian energy lines or these kinds of, they're intangible, but you kind of fall into them. And uh, it was really interesting. They were talking about, you know, cities have these elements and there was, I mean, who, who was it? I think it was George Simmel also talks about cities in this way, but like we have a long history of talking about the fact that cities feel a particular way. And that statement on its own, I don't think is controversial. I think many people would agree, you know, New York City feels a particular way. San Francisco feels a particular way. But if you really kind of dwell on that and, and kind of uh, elaborate that, it, it starts to get a little spookier. Like, well, what is that? And we don't know. Um, but I think it's interesting to, to hold that open. Yeah, no, I mean, there is something, there is something it is like to, you know, walk down Broadway and and that's something it is like is, is very special to to a lot of people and mm-hmm. you know the, the these sort of ideas you know I, I i hesitate always at this point because sometimes i i like you know it's always fun and interesting to talk about like the abstract motivations or or themes you know b- behind the book like you know for example you know the city's consciousness is kind of up on the streets but then in the book you know the subway system plays a really big role and that's the city's mm-hmm. unconsciousness right it's like this mm-hmm. deep dark thing the subway is kind of a very scary place in the revelations but i think also at the same time that sometimes it can make the novel sound like too too abstract you know like it is it, it's just a murder mystery mm-hmm. you know, set in new mm-hmm. york um yep. <laughs> and you know there's stuff involving the subway and there's stuff involving cities and their consciousness and there's musings and so on but in you know in the end it has to kind of work on the page as this readable structure and you know so much of writing the book was translating these sort of atmospheric thematic feelings into you know, actual action and, and scenes and, and characters and, and fleshing stuff out. And there's a lot of like structural stuff that you don't know until you're going to write a novel that you're like, mm-hmm. oh, I have to put a wall here, you know, <laughs> like, or like I have to put, you know, I've, l- let's make this the entryway and then, okay, let's make that the wing. And so, and you just, you just end up having to work within constraints. And I actually think that 
some of the power of literature is in the constraints and that you can kind of suggest things that maybe you wouldn't be comfortable suggesting in a nonfiction book or so on. Like, again, just to go back to this theme of fiction versus nonfiction. And ultimately, I think in a novel, the fiction aspect of it, if it works, they have to be predominant. It has to be literature about science. And there's a sense in which if you do that, you can't be subservient to the science. You, mm-hmm. you can't, uh, I'll criticize an author who, who I like, but, but I'll, I'll criticize him nonetheless, which is Richard Powers, who's a, who's a pretty big contemporary novelist. Um, you know, he, he just wrote The Overstory, which was huge, you know, and that won the Pulitzer Prize. And his, he, he writes a lot about science, which is very similar to myself. Sometimes his main characters are scientists and so on. But I think ultimately he is in the thrall of science. And that like, if, if you asked him, like, what's, what's more important, science or literature, he'd be like, oh, yeah, science or like, what's mm. maybe not more important, that's too broad, but like, what's closer to truth? You know, he'd be like, yeah, yeah, science, right. And mm. I think as a working scientist, you know, my advantage is that I'm kind of not in awe or in the thrall of science. Mm. Like, I, I think there is a sense in which literature ends up eating the science of the book. And that when you put them in a, in a room and fight fiction, you know, eventually gets this really tough stranglehold over science and kind of subdues it. And that to me is what I was most interested in. It's kind of like, what can I say here that I could never say scientifically or what what kind of truths or facts or observations could go into this? That it's not that I couldn't say them because I'm afraid it's because I literally don't have any other language to express them other than in fiction. I can just point you to the book right? It's like, what does the painting say? It's like, I can just point you to the painting, right? Like, ultimately, that's the only thing I can do. Yeah. And I mean, I think you, I think you, you did it in that, um, my experience reading the book, I read it in about two days, which is the way that I read fiction books. I'm, I'm generally not a fast reader, but when I read a fiction book, I can, I think this is common, right? We can breeze through them. But when I'm reading a nonfiction book about consciousness, it'll take me a little longer, even though I would tell you I'm more interested in reading nonfiction about consciousness that I am literature in reading that, you know, there's kind of an inversion there. And I, I read your book and I was, I was pulled, I was in the plot. It's like, wow, I got to see what happens to Kirk. I got to, you know, this and that. And when I would finish a scene, there would be a, a kind of lingering, almost an atmospheric feeling that I didn't quite have words for. And then I would go back and on a second read through, I would start to look and okay, what, you know, what, what, for example, the subway, what's the subway doing here? Why, why do I have this feeling kind of retrace through the structure and kind of, you know, do my own reading guesswork of, Hmm, I wonder what he meant through this. Um, but it it read like literature, which was so interesting and fun because it's very unusual to be able to, uh, read a book like this that is as, explicit about about kind of going on the frontier of these really complex tangled um open-ended questions and ideas but not kind of getting lost in them that it becomes a dense reading experience it was just a lot of fun to read um so i think you did that really well you you have no idea how much it means to me to hear something like that i mean i i this is something that i lived with for so long and and you know i don't mean to say that it all kind of came out you know the way it is now like so much of this book has been ensuring that sort of readability. And mm. in the end, that is, you know, I, I've, you kind of have to make a decision of what you prioritize. And to me, it, it just has to be the reader's experience. And if there's that deeper level where people can go into later, perfect, right? And that's, 
the goal of this, I mean, the, the, the book is, is, is massively compressed. Like if you could, at least I think so, like if, if you could, you know, measure the entropy of it, it would be like, it's almost <laughs> like a perfectly, I mean, again, this is again, what I'm attempting, not, I, I'm not the final judge of this, but like what I'm attempting is basically something which is like a perfectly preserved source file, like, like an mm. image that's perfectly coded such that you're using the exact minimum amount of information that you have that you can to store that image, right? Like mm-hmm. a perfectly zipped file. And that's the goal, right? Is that when it's in its zip stage, you can just breeze through it. But if you want to unzip it, you can just unzip it. And it's this like huge amount. And mm. that just hearing that you had an experience like that makes me like almost like really emotional because All it's right. just so meaningful to me that s- someone is out there having that experience. And honestly, as you know, we live in this like social media world where it's the culture is very balkanized. I don't honestly expect that this book becomes number one, New York times bestseller. <laughs> maybe, maybe 15 years ago, it could have had that chance. Um, Cause I think the culture was much more, much smaller in a certain sense mm. and now there's so much so what matters then like if, if, if okay, it's like okay so so you're not number one new york times bestseller so what okay so what's the goal like what matters and to me it's just like the experience of people on the page and if that's one person or if that's a thousand or if that's a hundred thousand like of course it's great if it's a hundred thousand but just that it's happening is is yeah just really deeply meaningful to me all right, let's let's jump back into the book then. Uh, there's a there's a scene that I wanted to ask you about um, where Kirk is remembering a time when, as a boy, he fell out of a tree, and during the fall, he has this experience that I think we're all familiar with. Um, you know, you're in a really intense situation, like falling out of a tree or getting mugged on a sidewalk, something novel and high octane, and it feels as if time slows down. Right, ten seconds feels like it's five minutes, and in the book you write that the current neuroscientific explanation for this is that during novel experiences, memories are kind of formed in more detail and greater number so that it just seems like subjective time slows down because there are more memories. Uh, but to Kirk, this, this doesn't feel like the whole story. And so you write, but to Kirk, this can't be the entire explanation. Rather, it has to be that each conscious moment is actually deeper, richer. There's a greater volume of consciousness or in a more Jamesian phrasing, time is the depth of the river of consciousness. And normal language doesn't have that distinction at hand. So people say time slowed down when really they should have said, there was more of me, I existed more. In which case, the amount of time experienced is a function of the richness of the experience. And it's a a really provocative and and, and rich framing um, that, that time is the measure of the depth of the river of consciousness. Um, and there's actually an interesting parallel of this in that uh, in back in, I think it was 2014, they started trying to to study the subjective experience of the passage of time in long-term meditators. And they began finding, you know, they experienced more uh, frames per second or, or some measure like that. Um, but I wanted to ask you about this. The, what, what does it mean to say there is more of us in those moments where time seems to slow down? What, what is a higher volume of consciousness? So maybe just to give a brief kind of background here one thing that kirk is doing throughout the book is trying to come up with a scientific theory of consciousness and he's kind of driven towards this 
And so he uses his past, he uses like all these kind of thoughts and digressions are all kind of like pre-theoretical musings. And in this case, it very much looks like Einstein's musings, right? Like this is stolen from Einstein's musing about like, well, what would it be like if you went as fast as the speed of light like on mm. a bicycle, right? There's a great Cosmos, epi- original Cosmos episode <laughs> with yeah. Carl Sagan in which he rides around, you know, with 30 miles per hour is actually the speed of light. What would the world look like? And, and that he's, he's trying to make this connection just like Einstein between space and time, but between like consciousness and time. He's trying to say maybe maybe what we think of as the kind of flicker rate of the world, the refresh rate of the world and going faster or slower, which I think everyone will admit happens to a certain degree. In fact, I think you can even time this. They've even done experiments where you time this in older adults. Like if you stop like a 70 year old on the street and you ask them to wait in silence for up to a minute, they generally will do it before a minute goes by. So they'll hmm. do like 40 seconds and they'll be like, okay, it's been a minute. And then like younger people are more accurate. Now, maybe they're just more accurate cognitively, right? Like it's really hard yeah. to disentangle this sort of effect, but like maybe their experience of time is quicker. And anyone who's, 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 who's grown up a bit knows what I'm talking about. Like, do you remember what it was like to have a summer day when you were like 13 like that right. day just unfolded in front of you. Like you had infinite time. Like y- you were you were sybaritically lounging in the amount of time that you had to go through this day. And now it's like, you know, a Saturday goes by and you're just like, <laughs> oh, where'd the day go, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, one, and one way of, of talking about that is to say that may- maybe it's just that when you're younger, you're laying down memories at such a rate that when you retroactively go back and ask, how long did that take? You find a lot of memories. So you say, well, it took very long. Right. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's like, it's, it's, it's that literally the, v- because language isn't actually very good at talking about consciousness. Maybe it's that the volume of the consciousness you have, like the depth of your river of consciousness is equivalent to the amount of experience you have of time passing. Like if you have a very deep, if you're very, very conscious, time passes kind of slowly, right? And then if you're very, like if you're you're almost unconscious, time passes very quickly. One good actual evidence for this would be dreams. Where Mm. dreams, you know, it really can feel like a lot can happen in a dream, probably because you're kind of weakly conscious. And then it actually turns out that in the real world, only like a minute went by. Right. So it's not so much that I'm, you know, the goal of the book isn't you know, as much as it is fun to have like a private playground where you can kind of put your own ideas out there. That's very much like a Kirk type thought because it's extremely speculative, but it's almost like pre theoretic. Like, hey, maybe if you notice this weird thing and you act on that, maybe you could come up with a relativity theory of consciousness and maybe that would be something like what we would want out of a scientific theory of consciousness and so those sort of pre-theoretical musings are kind of out there but you know in the end his part of the book is really about him trying to come up with this and you know and 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 doing that is very very hard right so it's it's you know it uh, basically drives him relatively insane (laughs) as i think these sort of problems can potentially do yeah, and and I think that we see too that this kind of these pre-theoretic musings are something that we have a really kind of uh, 
troubled, strained, dwindling relationship with, I mean, culturally, this is one of my, this is like one of my beefs with, uh, with like Wittgenstein is, you know, when he says that, you know, whatever you can't talk about, you should stay silent on. And I've always felt that you're, you're amputating so much because you, you just said that language isn't very good at talking about consciousness. You know, there's that, that what we can represent linguistically is not the whole picture that there's probably, there's much more going on here that we don't know how it fits into the structure that language affords. And if we kind of, uh, what do we say, constrain ourselves into only allowing that which language can kind of like uh, very skillfully uh, represent or, or kind of deal with. There, there's so much kind of of these, we can call them pre-theoretic musings, there's so much space um, that is outside of that structure that I, I, people like me, I, got, I naturally, I find that very interesting. Um, but I always worry that if we cut that off, like you said, we miss out on these these kind of novel ideas, uh, the, the Einsteinian musing of, oh, this is very strange, but let me follow this thought and just give it the space to unfold and see where it leads. I always, I always thought there's a lot of value in that, that, that we shouldn't lose. And that, that I, I completely agree, but I think also, you know, as, as, you know, you have, you have major, major chords and minor chords, right? You've got major themes and minor themes. And like one, one minor theme here is just that academia you know, is not, is not a very friendly place for someone like Kirk. I mean, mm. he he's he does not make it easy either, right? Though he's 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 kind of a, a bit of a difficult person. I think he he he's he a very tough much, cookie. Yeah, he's a bit of a tough cookie. He thinks he's very smart. He probably is pretty smart, uh, but he he thinks he's very very smart. But also, I don't know if there's any like really original scientific theories that come out of people who think they're like average or dumb mm-hmm. right like I, I it's it's almost like a complete prerequisite right it's like you know it's similar like the only people who build billion dollar companies are people crazy enough to be like <laughs> i'm going to be the one who builds a billion dollar company right so you have yep. this strong selective effect and academia has become you know a very a, a, a it, its culture is not an aggressive culture its culture is not a um is not kind of a striving culture to, to not, not in like kind of this like really big metaphysical way. So, you know, he gets into a, a lot of trouble and, and people react strongly to him. I mean, I think that there are strong impetuses within scientific subfields to keep things relatively conservative. And some of that is good, uh, but some of that is some of that is quite bad. And I think, you know, Kirk kind of runs into that with his kind of like, I want, I want the big idea. Like I want that grand theory and they're like well who's gonna pay you to come up with that you know like what's what how who 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 actually is gonna you know do any of this and there's a lot more like incrementalists kind of out there and it's you know again the purpose of the novel is not to like say that kirk's view is kind of correct it's to say that these people still exist but you know academia is can be a bit of a hostile place for them and i wanted to make a character who was kind of an old school romantic. And I mean that in kind of like the cultural literary sense of romanticism, like in the sense that like Moby Dick is a romantic work or that Kierkegaard mm-hmm. is a romantic writer and kind of put that sort of character. Kirk is almost like an eight is, is almost like an 18th century protagonist and kind of put him into like the modern world and then like watch, <laughs> watch like the chaos See what happens. Um, at least, like that's my interpretation. I think I, what I found in people reading it is that some people like really don't like Kirk at all. I, <laughs> I, I, I kind of like him to the degree that he's he's twenty seven in this book. You know, like I don't mm-hmm. think he'll be this way when he's thirty seven. Uh, maybe it's a bit more excusable when you're twenty seven. 
Yeah, uh, this is another one of those uh, let's call it pre-theoretic musings, but uh, they're where I gravitate towards. There's um, maybe another unsettled question in consciousness research, um, especially in the camp of those who um, we might call reductive materialists, eliminativists, uh, people who want to explain consciousness as just a byproduct of adaptive mutations kind of in a fundamentally Darwinian universe. But there's no, I think, I don't think there's an agreed upon explanation as to why consciousness evolved, right? No consensus on the evolutionary or adaptive value of subjective experience. Um, and, and certainly I think there's also this interesting impulse uh, to think of consciousness or to want consciousness to be something more than just a Darwinian adaptation, right? Something more grandiose or spiritual or fundamental. And there's a spot where Carmen, who is kind of reeling from a kind of contact high with Kirk, she had just had a, an encounter with him, and she's she's talking to herself and she's trying to explain away her feelings of attraction to him or, or to explain them in evolutionary terms. Um, but, but then she begins entertaining this idea, um, this possibility that consciousness is something more. And, and here's how you wrote that. But at the same time, Carmen hoped that all these things were merely expressions of something else, that the deep structure of the universe rewarded this reciprocal altruism between consciousness, that as one traced the physical to the biological, to the psychological, to the spiritual, it was obvious no one description captured all of it, that there was the underlying abstract truth that two are better than one, that unification was primary in ontology, that all of metaphysics was love and strife, that evolution was just one level of description, a single dimensional slice of a high dimensional object. And that, that last bit, that last phrasing, that evolution might be just a cross-section of kind of a, of a more complex and larger process. Um, interestingly, that idea is not just kind of pre-theoretic spe uh, speculation. There's a lot of really interesting work coming out in theoretical biology and physics and philosophy that's trying to kind of make this a similar case. And I want to touch on them, but I, I think just more broadly, I wanted to ask what what do what does Carmen, what do you, what's kind of on the table here when we talk about evolution being a, a single dimensional slice of, of a higher dimensional process? Well, I think with someone like Carmen, who's quite smart, but you know, as, as I said, these characters are, are kind of romantic characters. She, she's also somewhat religious. Like, and I think that m maybe more so even than Kirk, um, who has a lot of like high-minded ideas and weird ideas, but I don't think you could ever really describe him as religious in any way. I think Carmen is, has a, a, a religious impulse in her that sees beauty. There's another part where she talks about maybe consciousness is like a radio to God. And these are kind of these little musings that you, you know, she'd never say that. She would never say that publicly. Right. Right. But the, you get that sort of little musing within her, within her mind. Cause again, it's a novel, right? You get to peer in. So mm -hmm. this is what makes it all special and, and kind of worth it. But when she talks about this stuff, you know, particularly in that scene, she's she's kind of originally trying to explain away reductively like her her like of Kirk. Like she, I, I think she's even like maybe it's the nicotine because he just smokes all the time. <laughs> yeah. You know, so you just get you just get high whenever you're kind of near him. W within talking about you know selection as this high dimensional object, I, I I think we have to always keep in mind, and this is something that working scientists know but don't express that much. That science is always changing. And that 
you know, new information comes to light. And that small changes in emphasis can drastically change what might be called the the ontology or the the interpretation of of what's actually going on. Like, like, like here's an example of this. Okay, so imagine a possible world in which you you want to do uh, reincarnation, right? And you're you're, you're gonna you're like basically God, you're going to establish this world and you're going to do reincarnation. So now you got to figure out a mechanism for reincarnation, right? Hmm. And then you you figure out, you have to instantiate it somehow, right? You, you can just do like angels and metaphysics, but then those will have some sort of abstract rules and it just ends up looking a lot like an actual mechanism. So you come up with this idea to like, well, why don't we store the individual in like this crystal that they carry around in their body? And then when the body dies, the crystal can go make a new body, Right. And then you get the same person again because the crystal contains all the information. Hmm. And you say, well, that's that's actually what's even more interesting, right? It, well, th- that gets rather boring, right? Because you're just reincarnating the same people over and over again. So what, what if you could like mix reincarnation such that you take half the soul of one person and half the soul of another and you kind of combine them into a new person, right? And, and now you kind of set up your crystals to do that. Well, that's what the world actually is. Right. Like I just described DNA. DNA is a crystal (laughs) that contains information about how to build you. And when you have kids, they're your 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 half clone of of the information that is contained in you. Right. So so I just gave a very like this is this is again, this is just for uh, a thought experiment purpose. Right. But I gave like a very different emphasis on what's going on using different terminology than say, you know, Richard Dawkins, the selfish gene, <laughs> right? Um, but your the perspective on the process has changed, right? Because of that. So um, I think small, small changes in emphasis and exactly how things work can lead to really large changes in interpretation. And I think what Carmen is getting at there in her kind of musings about evolution as this high dimensional object is that consciousness does seem to sometimes throw a monkey wrench into contemporary theories like Thomas Nagel got a lot of flack for pointing this out that, you know, it does seem rather absurd to think that maybe consciousness is totally epiphenomenal, but then evolution works so that you just happen to all have consciousness. And it just so happens that your (laughs) consciousness perfectly corresponds and represents the real world. And it just so happens that you feel like you're making these choices, but you're not, you know, and then it all kind of works and it would work just as well if you remove the consciousness. And what Nagel was pointing out is saying that that, that seems kind of dumb or ridiculous. I, I kind of agree broadly. That doesn't mean he's right in any of his specifics. Mm-hmm. But I think Carmen, because she is a good scientist, is a bit skeptical about contemporary, maybe contemporary emphasis on things. Like, so it's not, it's not so much that she's saying, listen, the theory of evolution isn't true or something like mm-hmm. that. Like Carmen, right. that, that's not at all Carmen, but just that maybe if you put a different emphasis on how you're describing things, you realize that maybe the process is, is very different than you thought, or it's, it's not as lifeless or it's not as mechanistic as you, as you thought. Yeah. Uh, so I mentioned that there are, there are theories coming out here and I'll, I'll just bring in one that I think adds a little flesh to the bones. And I, I really like the way you described it, that it's not that we're, uh, or not that what these are doing are, for example, trying to challenge or overturn Darwinian evolution, but it's almost like a parallax shift that affords you a little bit more of a, of a wider lens on kind of a, a broader landscape of, of the process. And uh, I just read this book recently. I thought it was great. It was, um, it's called Enlivenment by a German biologist named Andres Weber. And his basic thesis in there is that um, 
the one dimension of nature and throughout the whole process of evolution that he sees that that really grows. He goes through this whole monologue of how, uh, look at all these dimensions of, of nature that, that do not grow. But then he says that uh, the only dimension that really grows is this diversity of experiences. And he's, he calls them ways of feeling, modes of expression, variations of appearance, novelties and patterns and forms. Therefore, nature gains neither mass nor weight, but rather depth. And his whole thesis is kind of that, you know, that evolution is not just the story of random mutations that catch on, but it's also the story of, of increasing experiential depth, which is what he calls enlivenment, uh, maybe what we're talking about as consciousness. And it was interesting because uh, I think this is very consciously a nod back to um, Henry Bergson, his book, Creative Evolution, in which he asks a question that I think you, you just recently put out a paper and the, these two things go in conversation really nicely. Bergson's question was basically like, when you look at evolution, it seems that it keeps developing higher and higher levels of complexity. And he asks, why? Like, why, why is it developing complexity? Um, and for him, he develops this whole kind of the, the idea of a vital impulse or a vital energy and that higher levels, levels of complexity unfold higher levels of the vital energy. And he kind of posits that as the telos of, of evolution. Um, but we don't have to follow Bergson all the way there. But this relationship between evolution and complexity um, and, and kind of emergence kind of woven into that process. Do you see that apparent trend in nature towards complexity as something that kind of fits into the Darwinian story of evolution? Or is it something that kind of signals some, something, I don't know, expanding the, the view beyond it? Um, one, one thing I will say is that, you know, I am not an evolutionary biologist. I'll just say, listen, when, when it comes to evolutionary biology, I would say a lot of the contemporary existing theories do very well at explaining some phenomena, it seems to me. Uh, in other cases, you know, like, like here's an example where it seems like more work could be done. It'd be something like, I, I, I've never really seen, I don't think genetic algorithms are very good at things. Like if you ask what the best way to solve like a problem is, it's almost always like an artificial neural network implementing backprop. And an artificial neural network implementing backprop will always arrive at a solution faster and better than an algorithm, than an evolutionary algorithm, genetic mm -hmm. algorithm. Okay, but if, if genetic algorithms like can't, and, and they can't perform very well on all sorts of complex problems that neural networks can perform very well. So, well, that's weird, right? Because you would expect, <laughs> like, you would expect that, listen, if, if evolution kind of, if, 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 if really kind of like really classic evolution, which is just, you know, mutation, variation, and selection over the, over the mutation, variation... Uh, you know, if, if that was kind of able to solve all sorts of complex problems extremely easily, then you would be like, okay, well, we're, we're done here, right? But if you're like, well, wait a minute, you can't even like classify, I can't even like get, I, I can't even use you to like play StarCraft well. You know, it's like, <laughs> well, that seems strange to me. It seems like maybe maybe there's some sort of backprop like going on in, in evolution where, where some image, which is almost Lamarckian, but it wouldn't be Lamarckian, right? It'd be backprop where mm -hmm. like, you know, how you tweak the gene, uh, that somehow that survival rate gets passed on and that information is made use of. If it turned out for that to be the case, now, again, you could then give a different emphasis on evolutionary theory. I want to be really clear. I think, you know, most of the scientific worldview is pretty much correct, but small changes in theories can lead to radically different emphasis. Hmm. So because of that, it may be that, like, let's say that tomorrow someone showed that uh, actually somehow you do have like backpropagation of genetic information across lineages. First of all, you wouldn't be like, oh, you violated the laws of physics, right? You'd be like, oh, I didn't think that that happened. 
And then you say, well, wait a minute, this, now this whole thing looks like a big learning system rather than even if it's just a small amount of information rather than, you know, what we what we thought it was, right, which which looked more like the really classic genetic algorithm. Now, I don't I'm not saying that that's true at all. Right. So let's be really clear. I, I have no idea um, <laughs> you know, wh- whether or not that's true. But I'm just saying that that's an example of how small changes can lead to changes in emphasis. And I do think that scientists think about things like that privately to themselves, particularly someone who's more maybe religiously inclined like Carmen. But yeah, anyway, I, I just wanted to put that out there as kind of my my like official response, because, you know, particularly the stuff that I work on, like emergence, complexity, consciousness, there is always a fear that eventually people will stop listening to you if you make too many, you know, outlandish claims. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I want to be clear that you know, I, I have no idea about, you know, I think probably their multi-level selection theory seems correct to me. I, I've got no idea. Right. So I, yeah. I, I would need to actually go into the field. So was it to, to make it, to bring it down to maybe your professional work in the paper I mentioned was the, the one titled evolution leads to emergence. And I think in there, and I'll want to ask you what you actually found, but I think what you found by, by looking at protein networks was that developing complexity and kind of these emergent uh, macro scale structures has an adaptive function that which would kind of put expand it or, or situate it well within the kind of Darwinian um, explanation is that maybe as, as a response to Bergson is that actually complexity is good. It gives you um, better access to information, higher quality information. Um, but w- what was generally that finding in that paper when you're looking at the protein networks, was that more or less the finding that actually developing complexity has a very good adaptive kind of function? Yes, but particularly by complexity here, we mean informative macro scales. And then uh, informative macro scale, is, it's kind of like with your computer, you could describe it at all sorts of different levels, which would be spatial temporal levels. There'd be like the atoms of the actual computer, then there'd be like the machine code, and then there'd be like your user interface, you know, or so on. Presumably, there's some sort of mapping, right, between the very lowest level entities up to the highest level entities. And, and some systems seem to have like viable, informative macro scale descriptions like computers, right? And mm-hmm. some don't like a glass of water. Maybe that doesn't really have much high level structure, right? It's just like some water yeah. in, a, in a bowl. I'm, I'm, uh, this isn't the perfect analogy, but like <laughs> that's that, but just to give to just give a listener an idea of what I mean by like an informative macro scale. And so this finding was that, you know, when we looked across evolution, it seemed as if like particularly eukaryotes, as you come kind of later in the tree of life, you see a lot more of this emergence of this informative macro scales. And we kind of propose these various information theoretic measures that can pick out when something has an informative macro scale or not. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting paper. I mean, uh, I'm always hesitant to be, you know, is it, is it, would it always be true? Like we looked at a thousand species uh, you know, is it true across every species? I, right. I, I don't know. You know, that protein interactomes uh, don't have the degree of specificity that they would need to to make the claim as strong as I would like. Like, mm-hmm. they, they, they change. Uh, you know, people don't have perfect maps of them and so on. So, but but yes, I, I mean, I certainly agree that there is something, you know, I, we can go back to some a thinker like, like Pierre de Chardin, who, you know, thinks that this is where the omega point terminology comes from that kind of the whole universe is evolving towards this more integrative state and that something about evolution kind of drives it in that way. And that could very well be true that when you set up evolution, either maybe, maybe it is just from, you know, straight up simple genetic algorithm 
uh, that you, uh, you know, inevitably end up with really significant complexity and integration. Maybe actually that that's actually pretty uncommon. Like maybe it could be the case that if you looked at all the planets in the galaxy, what you'd find was a lot of single cell organisms Mm -hmm. and nothing else. And we kind of got lucky uh, in that we started exploring this like complex side of the of the state space and there's kind of no reason we got to that side other than like a random drunkard's walk uh you know mm-hmm. so i think that there's a lot of uh kind of openness to there i mean i think you know the joy of fiction is that i can give different characters different perspectives and you know i, I want to say that all the characters have some different perspective particularly on the problem of consciousness and something that's interesting to me as a novelist is how these ideas influence your life. So as an example, you know, there's a character, Mike, who, um, you know, he is, is kind of a reductionist and, you know, he basically kind of not that interested in consciousness and that kind of informs his behavior. Like for example, um, I think there's a scene where he is, it's like a flashback to him at Harvard and he's doing all these study drugs in order to kind of keep up. It's kind of like, well, why does he do study drugs? Because ultimately he's kind of a reductionist in that he's like, well, listen, we're all just neurons in a chemical bath anyways. So why wouldn't I do a bunch of study drugs? Right. Right. Like what, what's, there's no moral imperative for me not to do that. And, and, and so he does it. And I think that that, that is something that's explored at various points throughout the novel is that, you know, it's, it's not which of these ideas are correct, which is of interest to me. It's kind of like, if you believe X, how does that then impact your behavior? Like as a person, you know, how you orientate yourself towards really big questions trickles down to all these like little behaviors. And every character has some trickle down moment where they're kind of how they think about consciousness ends up kind of impacting their behavior. It's kind of like when you have that process um, in the background, if, if you don't consider kind of your orientation to those questions. It's not like you don't have one. It just kind of um, occurs behind your back and then trickles down without kind of your say, right? Yeah, precisely. Like no one doesn't have a stance on consciousness. You just haven't really expressed it, you know, like uh, openly yet. And a lot of, you know, and, and of course that brings up questions of stuff like free will and so on. But something that was, you know, intriguing to me was, and maybe I'll just say this here because i you know the the level of depth with which i get to talk to you about the book might not be the level of depth that i get to talk to everyone uh about the book so so i'll I'll use this opportunity to also say that you know um all the different philosophical thought experiments that are really famous make an appearance subtly so an example that i was just giving was mike uh, uh taking his study drugs and it what he he begins to feel like he's getting the right answers on all the questions, but he doesn't really know how he's doing it. It's all just like symbol manipulation, which of course means that the study drugs turn him into a Chinese room. <laughs> right. Right. And and at various points, both through their own, you know, emphasis and metaphysical considerations, but also through their kind of behavior, characters enact all the different famous thought experiments like Carmen's. Carmen has a couple, including just the mind-body problem in general, which is maybe very on the nose. But like, also, you know, she gets in a relationship. There's some flashback where she gets in a relationship and it's her first big relationship. And she kind of 
knows what being in love is like because she's watched all the TV shows and read all the books and knows what love is like. But then actually being in love gives her all this new information. Mm. Um, and she like realizes it's completely different than what she thought it was like. And that's Mary, Mary the color scientist, you know, and so on. So, you know, and what it is like to be a bat shows up and so on. So these various kind of, it, it is a very philosophical novel, but it's also about people's behavior and what their beliefs lead them to do. <sighs> the it's the the Chinese room experiment it's or thought experiments on my mind it, it was really crazy actually how it worked out maybe a, a couple days before you emailed me uh, about letting me know about your novel there was I had just finished uh, Peter Watts's novels um you know Blind Sight <laughs> and Equipraxia yeah oh, wow which is crazy because I noticed him in your acknowledgments there was kind of a synchronicity there yeah um, Peter Peter Watts was so kind to me I'll just a quick plug one blind sight if, if you read another novel about consciousness mm-hmm. read blind sight it's very different it's a sci-fi novel you know this is a much more on the liter- mine much more on the literary fiction side uh just th- those genres are only worthwhile so much that people know what to expect a bit mm-hmm. um but you know in that book he's, he's very reductive very kind of um very kind of hor- horrific view about consciousness. Um, <laughs> but I think it's, but it's really, really interesting. Uh, and he was the first person to give this novel a blurb um, mm. and was incredibly kind. And he read it probably five years ago. He, he wow. read some just stack of papers that I sent him. So he, you know, just a, just a very w- warm, wonderful person to be willing to do that with someone who was completely unknown, you know, cause I, I didn't have, I don't have an MFA. I don't have any of kind of the standard means within which you access kind of the writing world. Yeah. I mean, I got my, my younger sister who's in college. Um, I sent her the book and she read it. And, and so she doesn't read books to start out with. And then she read it in about a day and a half and then called me freaking out about it. So it, it's, it's really engaging. Um, but the, the Chinese room problem, I mean, he deals with it a lot in there. And, and basically, you know, you have this question of you can have intelligence or what looks like intelligence without this interiority, and I won't get too much into, into his book there, but it, it feels to me almost uh, related to Carmen's issue, you know, when she's walking through the, the room of the orgy and, and it, it's zombies, there's nothing going on on the inside. It's, and then Mike taking his study drugs and he's, he's getting this really high performance, but there's something, there, there's something that's not there. That performance is kind of, there, there's something off about it. These all feel kind of strangely related to me. And, and, Maybe back to, uh, I think we spoke about this last time, but you know, the, you mentioned in the beginning, this extrinsic drift, this moving away from the intrinsic perspective, the intrinsic stance, there's something there that, that uh, gets lost. And so I find it very spooky to dwell on the Chinese room really, really puts it out front and center. Yeah, ab- absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I think you're, you're exactly right. I mean, you know, one big reason you, you, might, you might say, why even write novels now? Right. I mean, the the novel does not have the same sort of cultural force that it once did. There's just no arguing with that. That doesn't mean there's not an audience. That doesn't mean there's not readers. Uh, But it certainly does not have the same cultural force that it did. It's it's very hard even imagining a novelist on the cover of Time magazine like Jonathan. Mm -hmm. Jonathan Franzen was cover of Time magazine. That was 2008, maybe something like that. Mm. But novels are still the only intrinsic media like really they're the only thing really capable of representing consciousness well so they have this huge advantage particularly if you want to talk just thematically about these sorts of issues it just has this massive 
advantage and I don't think you can improve on it. You know, I mean, you, you'll notice like, you know, movies get updates, uh, video games get remastered, uh, novels, there, there's never, there's never a remaster, right? Because it's yeah. basically a perfect technology. Like it's yeah. finished. You, you don't, you don't, you, you can't do anything better than that. So, you know, I think to, to, to speak about these sort of almost like creepy horror esque, um, um, issues. And there is a, there is a horrific aspect. I mean, the book is, is supposed to be scary, uh, mm-hmm. at various points, you know, I mean, it, it, it and, and it's both scary personally, um, Carmen particularly goes through some things, but like also just almost like metaphysically. And that's because we don't, we don't know until science is kind of finished in a real way. We don't really know what sort of universe we're in. And that is a very scary thing because maybe the universe is kind of deeply horrific uh, M- Moby Dick has this wonderful chapter called on the whiteness of the whale. And it's like, why is the whiteness of the whale so terrifying? And it's because ultimately, um, whiteness is terrifying because everything is actually white. Everything is colorless. And we're just here pretending that things have color. And really what nature is, is a bunch of like white objects eating one another colorless, you know, mechanisms just consuming one another for their calories. And then we kind of paint it with this brush of our perception being like, oh, this is what a pretty yellow, you know? <laughs> and it's like, no, no, it's not. And that is like metaphysical horror. Like it's almost Lovecraftian. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of horror, you know, winds itself into the novel because there is the potential for a theory of consciousness. I mean, I, I, I'm not an eliminativist. I do not, I do think that consciousness exists. I don't think that the eliminativist position is coherent, but I'm not a hundred percent sure, mm-hmm. you know, like, and if that's true, then, then it is, it is kind of a horror. So I, you know, I, those, those aspects, like you're right that it kind of, it informs it and it, it kind of sits in the background. And I, I think that that sort of speculation, you know, hopefully ends up, rather than people having to always think explicitly about this stuff, it just ends up in atmosphere for the reader. At least that's the ideal. This is so that's exactly why I think I, I so enjoyed reading uh, Annie Dillard is because in a very similar Mm -hmm. way, what she does is she kind of takes you in in her backyard and Tinker Creek. And for example, shows you the insect world. And she's like, let's have a look at this world that we live in. And she shows you how praying mantises uh, when they mate the female gnaws on the male's head and eats it while it continues to have sex with her. She shows you how killer wasps will squeeze a honeybee and while the, the bee is dying, it sticks its tongue out and the wasp kind of munches on the tongue uh, while this poor little bee is dying. And then a praying mantis comes and starts eating the wasp, but the wasp keeps eating the bee while the praying mantis eats the wasp. Like it's this horrific, <laughs> horrific yeah. situation. Yeah. And she's like, look at this and look around. And like, tell me you understand this, you know, human beings, we look at this and we think we have this kind of moral order. And she's like, if we do, we're moral beings in an amoral world. And how terrifying is that? Um, so yeah, there's all these kind of, kind of echoes of that idea that are unsettling. Yeah. And the, the insect world is a great, is, is a super <laughs> interesting contrast because of course we're, 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 we're kind of lucky, incredibly lucky. I think likely that that we're mammals like like mm-hmm. and that we evolved as intelligent beings as mammals because of course mammal the root is 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 mammillary glands mothers right mothers mm-hmm. are what make mammals special wow. and 
every creature that's a mammal is born in love, right? Like they're, they're born mm. and they're cared for. So every mammal starts in love. Like if you have a, if you have a dog and you know, sometimes so, so, some dogs will like, they'll, they'll have like a blankie or like a bed that they really <laughs> like and yeah. they'll suckle it. Even as adults, they'll suckle their, their bed. Cause it reminds them of being back there you know, with, with their mother and it, it's very, you know, releases their endorphins and they calm mm. down and they just feel really good because, because, because the, they're back there. And I think that, you know, if we, we hopefully never meet intelligent, you know, an alien civilization that's like bugs because it would just be so <laughs> terrible, you know, and, and, and we, we, again, this is one of those things where it's, it's very unclear. Is it, is it that you necessarily have to have some sort of altruism and to get the sort of level of intelligence and consciousness that we have, or maybe it's not necessary. And we happen mm-hmm. to live in the world where there is that connection. And I think, again, both of those are this, the sort of contrasting ideas that like the different characters will have different opinions on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay. So wait, before we get too far away from, we've been talking about uh, evolution, complexity, emergence. I want to tie that up with, with one final question. Um, and this is about, so for example, your, your study of protein networks, you were looking at the relationship between emergence, kind of emergent macro scales and, and evolution. What I think is just as interesting, but it's not, not the same, is talking about the relationship between the complexity of the system and its capacity for consciousness. Because these things, um, I, I don't think it's necessary. And for example, I don't think IIT would say it's necessary that um, you need a, any kind of degree of complexity for a system to be conscious. And in fact, I think... IoT would say that, you know, a system of two neurons could be conscious if that's the maximal um, integrated information. But there, there seems to be a kind of interesting correlation or relationship between the complexity of a system and its capacity for consciousness. So, I mean, just broadly, I'd like to ask you about that relationship, but also maybe as a more pointed question, would it make sense to think about um, a system a system's complexity, the higher its complexity, maybe the deeper its capacity for consciousness. Is there some kind of, of, of line we can draw there? You know, the, the difficulty with, with answer, answering questions like this is that I can say, given some theory of consciousness, and then I can point to maybe a couple field-leaning contenders like integrated information theory, which I've worked on, and or some other ones, and say that, you know, it's true within this theory, right? Right. A big problem is that we even complexity is not very well defined, right? So, right, you know, uh, uh, your your a TV screen undergoing static, and I'm just now realizing that there's we're gonna have to stop using that metaphor because a whole generation of kids have never <laughs> seen a TV screen it's static. It's static, <laughs> yeah. It just it's never happened. Uh, a TV screen with static is transmitting more information than the than when you watch a movie, way mm-hmm. more because the entropy is so much greater. Hmm. But everyone will intuitively say, well, wait a minute, but like clearly that means that maybe we just don't have a very good definition. That's Shannon's definition of information. It's very useful mathematically and it underlies almost everything that we do, but like maybe there's something missing there. So I think that those questions are are, are kind of up in the air. Like it's when we talk about a fundamental drive, I definitely think that some of the characters in the book would like Kirk would probably say that. And as you say, does when he's talking to the DARPA agent, that there probably is some sort of fundamental necessary amount of integration or complexity that you need in order to kind of 
have consciousness, but is it identical or is it kind of like you just need a big enough house? Hmm. And if the house is big enough, then you can kind of fit a lot of consciousness in there. Um, or is it like directly linear, whereas if I decrease the integration or complexity of the system, I decrease the amount of consciousness. Certainly, I've been on scientific papers where we've literally done that. We've taken mice, you know, anesthetized them, looked at the complexity of brain dynamics, and seen that during, you know, deep unconsciousness that you have very non-complex brain dynamics, and during consciousness, you have you have high complexity. So I could... You know, I think if I were like a normal scientist, I could kind of be like, oh, yeah, of course. You know, here you go. Here's my paper, right? Here's look at this pretty image. And yeah. I never feel that way. Like I never I'm always like, yeah, you know, it, it worked there, you know, <laughs> and, you know, I, if, you know, but but again, is it is it is it linear? Is it that maybe you just need a certain amount of complexity, some minimum amount, and then you can kind of have the right sort of information, which is conscious information you know, uh, or, or so on. But I think, you know, uh, when I have my writer hat on, I almost mm-hmm. never have a coherent metaphysical view of the world. And mm-hmm. I think that it would be bad if I did. I think I think it, the book would be far less interesting. Again, I think ultimately, it is a book. So in the end, the literary has to kind of trump the scientific, not in that you can't do or include the scientific but just that kind of literature gets like that last that last laugh you know like Mm -hmm. at the end of the universe it's like art gets like a little last laugh after (laughs) everything after everything else has has calmed down right yeah it's almost uh, i mean in in many ways kirk does this throughout the book there are a lot of times where kind of within his program you know he's obsessed with looking for the theory of consciousness that explains the thing and when any, when anyone brings up anything else about kind of the functionality of consciousness or kind of the questions that science today is able to answer about consciousness, he kind of laughs it off and he, he thinks like, until you have a theory of consciousness, none of that matters. Like, like you say, it's a pre-paradigmatic question. We can venture an answer, but like, what is the point until we have a theory of consciousness? Kirk would, Kirk would say you need that first, right? Yes. And I think that this is maybe one of the things that I feel a little bit scooped on, which is that Kirk is very critical of contemporary neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he acts as an interesting foil in that he's, there are occasions where he's, he's clearly kind of wrong. Like Kirk, Kirk is not just kind of a mouthpiece for, for me to kind of yell at, yell mm-hmm. at everyone else, or at least if I'm successful in the book, you know, he's, he's, he's not that, <laughs> but that, his, his criticism is basically that, listen, all of neuroscience is just waiting around for a theory of consciousness. And yes, you can do the sort of neuroscience where you're like, here's my theory of attention. And I did, you know, I put people in this brain scanner and I saw this X and Y and so on. And he's just like, listen, you don't have a theory of consciousness. Your field is pretty paradigmatic. You can do that. The stuff you're getting is basically just noise. Like you're just mm-hmm. not getting anything out of it. And I do think that there is, that that's still an immense minority opinion, but I've heard it I've heard it kind of said with that level of fervor now, just mm-hmm. just kind of m- more so online than in real uh, published papers so far. But that I think that that's legitimate. Like, I think that that is a legitimate view of contemporary neuroscience, that it is a little bit meaningless until you get a theory of like, you might say you pull someone off of the street and you say, like, you know, how's neuroscience doing? They'll either be like, well, I don't have an opinion or they'll be like, you know, I think pretty well. And then be like, well, listen, would it surprise you if 
neuroscience has no has no ability to say what the lawful relationship is between brain states and what you experience. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, yeah, that seems pretty surprising. That seems like that's <laughs> actually the thing you want to figure out. Like everything else seems kind of ridiculous, right? Like there's, there's mm-hmm. basically you just have that. That is the question. How does the brain generate a stream of consciousness? There's not much else. So once you figure out that, then you can kind of have a real science. Until you figure that out, you're, you, you are kind of in this pre-paradigmatic. Maybe it's, an, it's a push whose time has come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like um, I, I just got this example. I, I just read um, Philip Goff's recent book, Galileo's Error, where he talks about panpsychism. Mm-hmm. And he gave a, a really interesting analogy here. He was talking about the, the way biology, what happened or the way this all went down in biology. And he says, and it turns, I was really surprised by this. It turns out that in biology, we don't have a kind of uh, everyone's on board theory of what life is. Like there is no, like the ground of, of what life is, is not settled. And instead, what happened is, is we began asking all these questions about the functionality of life. We kind of put a pin in that and started doing everything else that we were capable of doing. And that over time, that question of what life is kind of grew a little less interesting because we'd fleshed out so much of the, you know, the other portions. And uh, I think Goff was talking about someone like uh, Neil Seth, for example, who's very influential in, in that theory of the controlled hallucination. It kind of says that that's what we should do for consciousness, that we should put aside the question that we don't know what it is. And instead, we should study everything that we can because we can get good results and the field will progress over time in that way. And so I really appreciated Kirk kind of making these like a triumphant stand. He was like, no, (laughs) no, no, no. Like, and you don't hear, and you're right, you don't hear this made all the times. Like until we have that ground figured out, everything else could be overturned. Um, So I I really like the way that he, he brought that back in. That's good. I'm I'm glad that he he was a more sympathetic character to you. He's not meant to be. He's not meant to be immensely sympathetic. You know, yeah. like he's 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 definitely uh, troublesome in his, in his own ways. Yeah, and and so maybe on that front of uh, liking Kirk or not, um, it, something I wanted to ask you. You know, we've been talking a lot about theories of consciousness, um, and I'd, I'd like to play a bit of a devil's advocate here and, and and lob a criticism your way and see you know your take on it. Um, and it's not a criticism of you. It's kind of more generally of the field. So th- throughout the book, Kirk's obsession, like I mentioned, he wants to discover the theory of consciousness, an objective scientific explanatory theory, um, something that can be written down on paper in a third person perspective. And the hunt for this theory, without which absolutely nothing matters for Kirk, kind of drives him crazy. He's irritable. He can be condescending. He doesn't seem all that happy all the time. <laughs> you know, he's kind of <laughs> driven to the brink of insanity. <laughs> Um, And so the criticism was something like this. Let's assume first that this theory is possible. And second, let's assume that he discovers it, right? He writes that perfect string of paragraphs that explains consciousness in the same way that Darwin explained evolution. um, And all the other pieces are now able to fall into place. If he discovers and writes that theory, he will have to confront the fact that, or what I take to be fact, I don't know, that explaining consciousness does not change it, right? That he would be left the same kind of troubled person he was before the theory. And if you generalize that, the critique, and this is often, for example, in the contemplative or psychedelic communities, they like to lob this at kind of purely scientific studies of consciousness, that basically they're missing the point, that the point is to change consciousness or or maybe to increase its depth, as we've talked about. And that for any kind of holistic or meaningful study of consciousness, it would need this kind of experiential component, that there's no final theory of consciousness unless it provides a framework for understanding how to change it. 
So what would you say to this kind of general idea that the point is not to explain, but to change consciousness? I think maybe to, to argue from Kirk's perspective is that he would become incredibly reductive about it. He, he would be like, listen, th- there either are facts of the matter about what things are conscious and what they're conscious of, or there aren't. Mm-hmm. Let's assume that there are. If, if there are, then you need some sort of formal theory that tells you why certain physical systems in certain configurations have these experiences. If you don't have that sort of lawful correlation, so, some theory that tells you why this these neurons firing here are associated with color red or so on, then you have a massive gap in your understanding of the world and in your your science. You have this like huge, you know, radiating gap in the in the tree of science. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think for him, he would be you know th- there, there's something very egotistical in his pursuit of this that I think is probably a realistic reflection of the egoism that many of the of who people who we now consider kind of great people who have come up with theories of nature right newton einstein mm. you know, a, a million other smaller versions of that that there that there is something incredibly magnificent about that and that he would say it, it's it's worth it he'd be like yeah like i'm unhappy so what Mm. <laughs> what, what is that? What What is that? You know, if that's not the point, you'd rather be, you know, you'd be like, listen, you, to be Einstein and to be, and let's say you're, you're unhappy and you're Einstein, let's say Einstein's unhappy to be, that is so much better than being like a happy medieval peasant because <laughs> you're, or even maybe, maybe he would be really kind of critical and be like, you know, an, an average person, right? Like maybe he would be really mm-hmm. elitist. You know, it, it would say, listen, it's it's like it's like the difference between being like a dog and like a human, right? Mm-hmm. It's like we're way less happy than a dog, far less happy. But no one would ever make that trade, right? Like if you're Einstein, you just never go, you you never make that trade away from being Einstein, even if you're mm-hmm. unhappy. So I think, I mean, I, I think he would kind of push back and, and and be kind of really reductive and like look at the history of science and just say that shouldn't this theory exist? And then. You, one of his points is basically that, listen, almost no one is working on it. Like people talk about consciousness a lot. The number of people actually trying to come up with a fundamental scientific theory of consciousness is very small, probably in the dozens, mm-hmm. if you look at the globe. So then what's your probability of being Einstein? Pretty high, <laughs> right? I mean, because your competition yeah. is not good, right? I mean, mm-hmm. your competition is, is, is not really significant. So... Mm-hmm. No, but but I also will point out that one other huge aspect of Kirk's character that does agree with what you're saying is the writer part of him. Mm-hmm. And okay. that is the more Kierkegaardian, the more romantic, the more kind of maybe let sleeping dogs lie. Maybe the act of consciousness is kind of enough. So I would say I don't have a perfect answer to your question, but I can at least tell you that that's how I would think that that Kirk would react to it and that there is that you know he he isn't just a complete scientific reductionist right i mean he he is very much um kind of on the side of aesthetics and and that ends up you know without talking about the ending of the novel but that certainly ends up being a primary motivation for many of his character choices mhm yeah i think a lot of times that criticism is brought up and kind of very unhelpfully framed in in a binary that like either you go meditate in india and drop acid for the rest of your life (laughs) or like you become a neuroscientist 
Um, and it's much more interesting, you know, the, the kind of field of, I think they've dubbed themselves contemplative neuroscience. It's been really interesting the past like 10 or 20 years. And you have based, you know, they're bringing B- Buddhists into the labs and, and studying their brains. And it's very interesting because what people who have devoted their lives to practices of consciousness are, are able to do is kind of bring these, bring or deliver the capacity to study uh, phenomenal states that we otherwise haven't been able to. So for example, when you bring in a Buddhist who, you know, the way they report their subjective experience of their deep in meditation, they can kind of come to a deep and resting, abiding calm where the, the contents of consciousness kind of settle like dust when you stop kicking it up and it settles down. That's a phenomenal state that ab- the, the average person generally isn't able to maintain. So it's very interesting when you can kind of have these, maybe you can call them even athletes, you know, athletes of, of consciousness is they have these kind of capacities that are unusual and it brings in these really fun kind of vantage points that sometimes are, are difficult to see otherwise. But it's a very symbiotic relationship, I think. And I think in general, people see that too. I don't think, you know, we're at this kind of uh, sure. standoff between those two. But, uh, just just to give a, a slight pushback, I mean, who do you think had the richer conscious experience? A contemplative Buddhist monk, however high up you, you want to make them, versus, mm-hmm. say, Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Right? And yeah. there's something like... You know, as, as much as we think of like the the Western world as maybe not being like at home in in consciousness, and there are there is certainly some tr- some truth to that. It's also like yes, but but Shakespeare, right? Like, we, 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 like <laughs> would you rather be you know like like surely an incredible poet, you know, surely just an, an utterly beautiful poet has a certain experience of the world, and what I think a novel does is. And, 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 a, and a poem does and so on is, is that it can give you some of that experience, right? And that's what's mm-hmm. so magic about, you know, p- particularly I think literary forms like the novel um, is that it allows you access to that. Like, frankly, the goal of the book is to be like, okay, so this is what it's like to be Kirk. And so, you know, the point is to convey what it is likeness. And the, the interesting thing is that even with a perfect scientific theory of consciousness, it's unclear that you could ever transmit what it is likeness like it may still be the case that the best way to do it is still you know sitting down with microsoft word and figuring out how to say what you want to say and so that's what i mean by in the end i think that you have to have to put this these sort of philosophical musings that we've been talking about within the skin of fiction it can't be just like a disguise it has to be that there are Mm. like hints that in the end the literature is kind of primary and again, gets that gets that last laugh. Gets the last laugh. It, it, it's so interesting too. I mean, I when <laughs> when you say yeah, but Shakespeare, that's that's right. And I think that's why I liked uh, you know when I, I shared the quote when you talked about the volume of consciousness and there was more of me. Um, there's something to that that I that I think is often left out of the contemplative perspective. I think one of my favorite ways I've heard this kind of uh, tension phrased was uh, Thomas Metzinger who uh, probably one of my favorite philosophers of consciousness, but he's also a, a very long-term meditator. So he's an interesting mix. Um, he wrote the book, The Ego Tunnel, which is like trying to convey his prior book to, to normal people like me. Um, but in that book, he says like, look, what we do not have culturally, and by I, he's speaking about the West in this sense, what we do not have is an answer to the question. Um, the question being, what is a good state of consciousness? And specifically, like an answer to that question that is grounded in kind of cognitive neuroscience and and our kind of empirical scientific approach. It's like, until we have an answer to that question, it's almost like that's his version of of Kirk's kind of, until you have a theory of consciousness, you have nothing. For Metzinger, it's like, until you have an idea of like, what is a good state of consciousness, which is 
getting towards that normative dimension of like consciousness changes. We know this. Um, everything we do changes consciousness. The world we build, the the daily practices we take on, even like the the kind of ways in which we think, like the way we narrativize our own experience, kind of calcifies and and nudges it in one way or another. It's like everything is changing consciousness. So until we have a theory of what a good state is, we're kind of blind. Um, and and I wonder on this this kind of normative dimension of wondering what is a good state of consciousness. I, I think that the the but Shakespeare is a really interesting kind of addition in the, in that space. But do you think that the scientific study of consciousness, the empirical study in the way that neuroscientists go about it, is there a way to bridge the gap between that kind of analysis and the normative question of what is a good state of consciousness? Or are those kind of separate like science and philosophy domains? I, th I think they might be a bit separate. I certainly don't think that just having a theory of consciousness on hand would immediately answer that question. I, I will say that I think that this gets to precisely one of the things that I'm interested in, in exploring about characters, which is how their metaphysical beliefs impact their actions, or mm. maybe even the reverse of that, where we're in, everyone has deep aesthetic impulses that are maybe inherent to them. Maybe they're genetic, maybe they're from some incredibly deep childhood event. But, you know, ultimately, the only thing I can say is that there is a reason why I'm a novelist and not a monk, mm -hmm. right? Which is that I don't find it interesting to have like the sort of the, like the ohm state. <laughs> that, that's not interesting to me, yep. but I'm still very interested in consciousness. And as a very simple example of this, something that's always struck me as kind of a horror is like the Christian heaven where you just go and you become subsumed. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's, it's very unclear what happens after that. Whereas like, I want like smells, like, like the smell of like a steak or like wine, you know, the, the, the feeling of grass or ooh, the feeling of stepping on glass. I bet that, I bet that if I was existing in an incorporeal state close to God, after about a thousand years, I'd give anything to just step on a piece of glass, Be very a small bored. piece of glass, you know, you know, just to experience that again. And so I think that, and I, I think I can speak for all novelists when I say that it is the diversity of conscious experiences that is of interest to us. Mm -hmm. And so there's almost something like bodily and primary about particularly writers and like earthy that like, I don't want heaven. Like I want more life. I want to live again. Like give, give me, give me, give me it again. Right. I, I, I don't want <laughs> to. Yeah, exactly. Like, like I want more. I, I don't want this kind of stoicism. And, and maybe that informs my, my thinking about, consciousness as well in like a deep way where, where, where I'm, I'm not so interested in sort of transcendental conscious states. I'm, I'm more interested in like, like, okay, yes, there's transcendent conscious states where you feel at one with everything. There's also orgasm. Maybe that's kind of close. There's also like the sound of hearing a saxophone in the subway when you're walking down the subway and you hear the saxophone from a distance. Those all seem like things that all belong in heaven which all to me says that that idea is kind of incoherent. Like you just have life and life is like diverse and, and that's what makes it so amazing. Yeah. I, th I think that's, that's a great way to put it. Um, here's all right. Here's my last stab at this, this normative dimension uh, of consciousness. And, but this ties back into the way you wrote the book, which was, which was really interesting. Uh, as you mentioned, one of the themes um, I think it happens almost, if not every chapter is it begins with Kirk waking up and this kind of phase transition, you know, from sleep and, and we're coming online after a night's sleep. 
And from our definition of consciousness at the beginning, you know, we said that uh, there is no consciousness during a deep and dreamless sleep. Um, some Tibetan monks might disagree, but dreams can tell us a lot about consciousness and especially um, lucid dreams. I think they can give us, and not I think, there's all kinds of research on this, give us unique insights into the nature of the self, of self-consciousness, but more broadly, I think uh, the different ways that we might kind of inhabit these internally generated or, or mediated uh, worlds that our brains are, are putting together. So the question that I want to get at is, is this. Lucid dreaming is to the dream state as blank is to the waking state. You know, in a lucid dream, you're still embedded in part in, in this model that your brain is generating, but there's a kind of, there's an awareness, there's a consciousness, there's an autonomy um, there that didn't exist before you were aware of the fact that you were dreaming. Um, and this is something, I'm getting this from Metzinger, who's, who's written about it as well, and a few others, um, that, that one way to think about the normative question of consciousness um, without getting too reductive, without getting too dogmatic, but like, how do we answer that question um, in a way that, as you said, doesn't avoid the question such that it just occurs in the background behind our backs, uh, you know, of what kinds of consciousness should we be fostering for ourselves, is to be developing parallels of this kind of lucidity, but in the waking state. So if I were to throw that at you, do you have any thoughts as to what that might mean or, or look like or be that kind of parallel of lucid, of lucid dreaming in the waking state? Well, I, th I think that there is two answers. I mean, the, the most obvious answer is like rigorous introspection. So like most of the time you're not rigorously introspecting, right? You're about your own consciousness. Um, that's like something that Descartes does or hmm. some phenomenologists or people who meditate or so on. So maybe there is a sense in which that is kind of an answer to, to that question. Maybe not, not the most interesting answer. Maybe to move sideways a bit, I mean, I would say that, you know, reading fiction and, and just other, you know, art forms as well and experiencing a different consciousness than your own within your own consciousness is the sort of weird, strange loop-esque thing that occurs during lucid dreaming. Like, if you think about what, what I, I said, a novel is something that is, a novel is an artifact that describes a possible world in which the problem of other minds doesn't exist. Now, how is that possible? Well, it's because the author came up with all those characters within their own minds. So because they came up with the characters within their own minds, the characters' minds are visible or viewable in a way that normally minds aren't, right? Hmm. So then when you read a novel and you're experiencing another character's mind, you're kind of in this crazy Gedelian loop, um, which we don't really think of or remark upon because it doesn't seem strange to us. <laughs> when you can perfectly access these characters' minds because they were kind of created in someone else's mind. So I do think that there is something about, you know, I don't, I, I don't think that the, 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 there are various places in culture where these explorations of consciousness come in. They're just not always like remarked upon. Mm. I, I did want to very just briefly state about the waking up that yes, to answer your question, yes, every chapter begins with Kirk wakes up at the first three words. And there are, I think, 32 waking scenes <laughs> in the book. And it was very challenging to have that not be, I, I'm always glad when no one says I got tired of another waking scene. <laughs> you know, I had these huge, I had them all drawn up separately so I could compare them and make sure there weren't any repetitions or that it wasn't too boring or so on. 
there's a lot structurally going on in this book. Like I've, I've, I've never read a book which has been just every next chapter is a day and yet you still mm. manage to have a plot or every chapter is a wake up scene. Like you literally follow the character wake to sleep, but it doesn't quite feel like you are because mm. if you actually did that, it'd be immensely boring. So figuring <laughs> out like how to, you know, structure everything like that, maybe it's a more practical uh, exploration of consciousness, but it felt like it, they felt like it, it felt like, okay, so we don't find our days immensely boring. So like at what level of abstraction can you describe someone's day over and over and over again, hmm. such that it's not boring. So did you find yourself, uh, every time you wake up, did you find yourself like with a new kind of renewed attention on that experience? Like, Hmm, what was this one like? Cause you had to come up oh, with yes. a lot of different. You know? <laughs> oh yes. I had a huge notes of just different wake up scenes and different dream scenes and so on. Um, <laughs> and you know, and I think i I managed to kind of, you know, sprinkle them out enough that they never feel, uh, over overwhelming in any way. <laughs> but it, it was great. It was really cool. It really does. It, it makes, it makes the experience such that you feel like you're kind of following Kirk in and out of these states. And it's a very kind of, uh, there, there's a daily rhythm that emerges out of it. And, uh, I, I think this speaks more to kind of like my lack of perception than anything else, but it took me like a couple chapters to realize what was going on. I was like, Oh, we're doing this again because it felt that way. And like, once I caught that, like we mentioned that atmospheric feeling of looking back, I can say what it felt like was that I was following him in and out of these phase transitions. And then I kind of like went back to the beginning of the chapters and I looked, I was like, ah, and it was really fun to trace that. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. That's, that is working as intended is always like, it's like (laughs) when programmers, like when you like, if if you're a programmer and you're listening and like your code just like works when you click it, Hmm. that's what that feels like when a reader tells you that you're like, oh, (laughs) it worked. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. Very briefly. um, You know, I, I think that that is the level of description that, people feel that that does reflect kind of how we see our own consciousness, which which is probably, which is this day to day, like, okay, today's Mm. Tuesday. What do I do on Tuesday? And the reason why you can kind of sneak through it uh, without noticing too much is that I think that it does somewhat mimic how we experience things. I'll I'll also say just while I have this opportunity here, I, I don't know if any reviewer of this book will ever notice any of this stuff. One thing that I think was very uh very meaningful to me to to get across is precisely that that daily rhythm that mm. i i that i've never i've it's been I've, I've read a lot of different contemporary fiction and i've never found that daily rhythm of consciousness well and well instantiated in a novel and that was something i worked really uh hard to hard to get across in a way that wasn't uh, too overwhelming. So again, yeah, just super glad to hear it. People can, people who are listening can tell that this is one of my first like official conversations about this book. <laughs> you know, the book is not out yet. The book is coming out in, let's see, a little over a month from now. Yeah. So we're, we're early. Right. Yeah. Okay. So before we, we go back into our daily rhythms here, I was actually going to ask you this afterwards, but I figured listeners might benefit as well. You know, we talked about, books as kind of these kind of etchings on, on the record of, of what it was like to to live in the day of, of this time of, of of what is it likeness um we we mentioned peter watts's blindsight novel i wanted to ask you what books have been formative to you or what books have been particularly um helpful in that regard of of as kind of records that make you feel something of what it was like to be that that sense of personhood what kind of books were really helpful for you in, in kind of forming that view of, of what books can do? 
If I had to name a couple just right off the top of my head, I mean, uh, first I would start with, you know, books. To, to me, books always fall. What I fall in love with with books in the end is is the language. The, and, and that language somehow creates the atmosphere. Um, it's like you're, you're, you're accessing the narrator's consciousness in a certain way and you get a certain feeling from it. And, you know, the books that have done that a lot for me have been like Bruno Scholz's The Street of Crocodiles, which is um, like magical realism. Um, people like Dow Mossman, The Stones of Summer, which is very little read. It was had an incredible New York Times book review. It sold 3000 copies. Uh, they made a documentary about it because it's like one of the best little known books mm. uh, ever. You know, uh, I, honestly, the, my biggest influence in terms of fiction and, and feeling like deep within another person's consciousness was pro- would probably be Herman Melville. Um, mm. This book is incredibly Melvillian. Um, I read Moby Dick five five or more times during the writing of this. I just read it and reread it. Wow, that is um, no small feat. It, 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 it's it's I, I think it's just I, I find it just so readable. Mainly because mm. I think what makes it readable is that you have to just give up on the plot a bit (laughs) you just kind of are like okay what are we talking about now today melville um and 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 i am aware that now i've i've cited like no contemporary writers and i and i feel bad um (laughs) maybe i could say you know zadie smith david foster wallace garth Mm. risk halberg some of my favorite contemporary writers i i do think this tradition particularly within herman melville to set up these huge omnivorous works wherein, you know, he's as, he's comfortable discussing metaphysics on one page and then discussing, like, you know, very much the business of whaling. There mm. are scenes in the revelations that are basically just, you could say, stolen from Moby Dick in that, like, you know, the, here's the scene where we describe what happens when you capture a whale and how they, like, skin the entire mm. beast next to the ship in this crazy... And they have to do all these crazy things. Like, they, they, they peel it like an orange and they use the the mast of the ship's leverage to peel the entire whale like an orange. It's insane, wow. right? And similarly, like the animal research scenes in yeah. the Revelations are very much a homage to that where you're just like, okay, so I'm just going to walk you through this experiment. And what the reader is thinking is like, this is the craziest thing. Like, I cannot believe people <laughs> actually, you know, drill open the skull of a mouse soften the skull with a skull softener chip through install like a grid that descends down into the cortex you know like all the steps you have to do to go through that and you know so i wanted to write a book about science in kind of the same way that that melville wrote a book about whaling i realize i'm setting myself next to melville who's like in my opinion the greatest (laughs) writer of all time i mean this as an inspiration right like i was just like like this was kind of my north star throughout the writing of it just in 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 that sort of the attention both to metaphysics but the attention to whaling as like a discipline Mm -hmm. and then as i said there's the um progressive and digressive characters where captain ahab is always forging ahead and ishmael's always like lounging around on deck and being like where did this pelican come from like what is it like (laughs) to be a pelican you know you're just float you're you're going through the sky you know you're 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 so like you're separated from reality what is that like you know and, and similarly, you know, Carmen is kind of trying to solve this murder. And meanwhile, Kirk is, you know, kind of like, you know, but what if the city is conscious? And, <laughs> right. and, uh, and you can even see that, by the way, in terms of the narration, like, um, because 
if this were a different book that was less, I love digressive books, which is why Kirk is the main character. If this were a normal murder mystery, as I said, Carmen would be the main character. And you can tell that because whenever they touch, the narration becomes really unsteady. Like the narrator doesn't know who to go into, whose mind to go into, because mm. Carmen kind of should have been the main character in a different sort of book. So whenever they touch the 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 narration starts flipping really rapidly between them, mm. like it can't it can't choose. Yeah. Well, I think I think that's there's something too. I think this is the way it works too. When you have these books that it's almost schizophrenic, right? You have this kind of very lofty, abstracted musing about the nature of of pelicans and the universe. And on the other hand, you know, whaling business or, or animal research. But I think it's the, the, the deeper that you can drill down into those kind of um, maybe naked realities of everyday life, looking at these things like the whaling business, which is it's earthy, it's crunchy, it's on the ground. This is just the world. Like the, the deeper you dig yourself into sharing that, it, it, not that it justifies, but I think it enables the reading experience when the, you, you then follow, you know, the musings on the, on the origins of the pelican or the, the nature of consciousness, there's a relationship there that the farther out you go on either end of the spectrum, it works much better. Um, yeah. And I definitely got that experience is that, it, and I, that's also my favorite kind of reading because at first you, it, it feels strange. You're like, wow, we're getting so into the detail of, of whaling and now we're all the way out here, but then there's kind of, and it's not spelled out for you to say, here's how they connect, but it kind of invites you into this space where you can kind of draw these connections that, that otherwise you might not have gone into. So I, I, that's a really fun style and, and it definitely worked here, but it, it's, it's interesting and it makes sense now to hear that that was kind of, you know, rooted in, in Melville. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that getting, I mean, one, again, I'm, I'm still for, for listeners, I'm still a bit trepidatious in that we're, we're so, you know, early out, I, the, the barely any reviews in yet, you know, of any kind, I, I don't have any magnificent expectations in terms of sales. Um, but I'm kind of very interested to see how a book, which is, th- there's a lot of really amazing stuff going on in contemporary fiction. So I don't mean to be dismissive of it if I don't like mention it. Um, but I don't, that this was not inspired and I don't feel in communication with a lot of contemporary mm-hmm. authors. I feel in communication with a lot of older authors. And that's not because the ancient times were better. It's because the structure of the books have changed in terms of what is popular. I think it Mm -hmm. used to be much more popular to write big, omnivorous, almost essayistic parts directly into your novel. And outside of maybe some aspects of autofiction, which is a whole different subject, contemporary autofiction, which is like people who write mostly from their own perspective, which does include a lot of essayistic musing. But like a really classic tale would also include a lot of stuff about manners or how ships work or so on. And that is why I feel very much in communion with uh, authors from a hundred years ago. And I'm just kind of interested in seeing what like the reaction is uh, to the book itself because of that. Yeah. Me too. Can't wait. I'm excited now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Eric, this has been awesome. Uh, Before we we wind down, is is anything lingering for you? Anything about the book consciousness, uh, the direction of evolution, anything else you want to put out there? Uh, I think we've we've covered enough. Um, I think in a, in a very good way. Uh, the key to this book, right, is that I don't have all the answers. Like it's mm-hmm. it's just a guide. I think that if I kind of if it if it had a firm ending message, particularly in relationship to the philosophy or the metaphysics or even the science, if it had a if it had a firm answer to that, it wouldn't be as kind of chromatic uh, and, and enigmatic. And that 
is to me what makes it literary. Like I said, I think that literature has to get the last laugh. So this book is, here's me laughing. Okay. Uh, Links to pre-order Eric's book, as well as the other books we mentioned throughout the conversation, are all available on the show notes page. For the technically minded, I also linked to a few of his recent academic papers on causal emergence. We didn't talk all that much about them here, but they're really, really interesting. If you would like to stay in the loop on new episodes of the podcast, there's a tab on the MuseMind website at the top that says newsletter. You can click that and subscribe, and and that's how you'll get updates on the newest episodes. If you'd like to get in touch, you can reach out to me on Twitter, or there's a contact form uh, on the website itself. And I think I'll close this episode out with a quote. (laughs) Big surprise. I'm working on a biographical essay on Annie Dillard, who I mentioned throughout the conversation. And I thought a lot about this quote of hers uh, while I was speaking with Eric, because I thought he hit a lot of the same notes. Why are we reading if not in hope of beauty laid bare, life heightened and its deepest mystery probed? Why are we reading if not in hope that the writer will magnify and dramatize our days, will illuminate and inspire us with wisdom, courage, and the possibility of meaningfulness, and will press upon our minds the deepest mysteries, so we may feel again their majesty and power. What do we ever know that is higher than that power which, from time to time, seizes our lives and reveals us startlingly to ourselves as creatures set down here bewildered? Why does death catch us by surprise, and why love? We still and always want waking, We should amass half-dressed in long lines like tribesmen and shake gourds at each other to wake up. Instead, we watch television and miss the show. Thanks everyone for listening and for your support. I'll talk to you next time.